that case, I sentence you to a lifetime of horror on Monster Island. And welcome to episode two of the Kaiju Kingdom podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris Eaton, along with the other host. Hi, it's me. It's Jessica Sang. So, if you listen to the first episode where we droned on about our love for monsters, we're actually going to get into some nitty gritty today. Uh, we this is a, a special two part episode, kind of like those uh, very special episodes of uh, sitcoms back in the day. You know, where, you know, things got real for a little bit. <clears throat> so, what we're going to be talking about, though, is the Pacific Rim Blu-ray DVD that came out earlier this month. Jessica has spent the last good portion of a week and a half taking college-level notes on this disc while I sat there <laughs> and just watched everything. I'm just like, yeah, okay, I'll talk about that. So, you're going to hear a professional opinion, and you're going to hear the lazy man's opinion. So... Uh, we're going to break it down into... How, how are we going to do this, Jessica? We're going to break it down to two discs? Yeah, we're going to break it down like... I believe this is podcast part one of mm-hmm. the Pacific Rim Blu-ray DVD review, which is the special features discs. Okay. So... And then our second one will be what's actually on the Blu-ray movie itself. Mm-hmm. And for those who haven't checked your Blu-ray, please look. There is actually three discs. Yeah, I had this. I, I had this problem the other night. I was uh, we were we were gonna sit down to record this. I'm just and you're going over. It's like, well, did you see the blue person stuff? I'm like, no. Where the hell is that? She's like, there's a second disc. And I thought I got shysted for a minute. I bought the wrong one, and I was like, what? What the hell? So I'm going through. I open up my disc. That's right. It's the second. Literally the second I open it up, she tells me, yeah, there's a second disc underneath the Blu-ray, and there it is, staring right back at me. And I'm just just screaming every swear word I know. Because I was an idiot and didn't even notice. So, uh, damn you Warner Brothers for uh, tricking me. <laughs> yeah, no, I ended up putting two discs into one PS3. See, at and least I was like, oh, I'm no. very happy I didn't do that to mine. I was like, why is it not playing? Mm-hmm. And then when I hit eject, it came out, and I was like, oh, my God. And it was also <laughs> not my PS3. Mm-hmm. So, so you I just looked like, around, oh. you kind of gave the eyes, okay, nobody saw that. No one saw that but one of my dogs. <laughs> but my dog is, you know, dogs are man's best friend, and mm-hmm. they'll be real quiet. Unless uh, they learn to talk one day, and they just, it's like, what? So, hey, remember that time you pretended to throw the ball, and uh, you didn't? If I tell your roommate you screwed up his PlayStation. Yeah, don't think you'll be doing that anymore. <laughs> All right, enough uh, lollygagging. Let's get into the meat that is the Pacific Rim Blu-ray. Yes, and I apologize if you guys are going to hear papers rustling. Uh, I took as much notes as I could because, unlike Chris, I do not trust my memory. <laughs> so, and the best part is now looking back, I can't read all of my handwriting. Well, let, let's be honest so. here. I also don't, you know, I, I mean, I, 
I don't trust my memory as much either. I'm just much lazier than you are. You obviously are much harder worker than I am. So that's why I'm in, uh, I'm entrusting you to a lot of this, and I'll be happily riffling along with you. Riffling, okay, riffing, that's no problem. Riffing, not riffling. That whatever word that is. <laughs> you made a new word. Yes, I do that all the time. All right, so enough lolly gang. Let's get let's get down to brass tacks. Yes, so everyone starts off, I don't know about you guys or you, Chris, but whenever mm -hmm. I'm online or I get a DVD, the first thing I look at is the deleted scenes because mm -hmm. it's always interesting to see what gets cut out. And you always get like reactions like, yep, that definitely should have not been in there. It has no point in the story. And some is like, it's so good. Yeah. Why did they delete it? And sometimes it's just like a, you know editorial choice. It's a matter of, it's a matter of pacing half the time. Yes, yes, and I noticed that they have four uh, sections. I never do play all. I always hit each deleted scene separately because mm -hmm. play all just confuses me. Yeah, because you don't know where one's stopping, where one's end, uh, one's beginning. I've had that problem where it's like, oh wow, that was a you know good two three scenes, and then I go back look in the chapters. It's like, oh, that was all one huge scene. They just <laughs> they took out like a massive chunk of the of sequences. They edited it together and just threw it back into the disc. Yeah, yeah, they did. And I think for the first one, it's called The Wall of Life Rations, mm -hmm. where we got to see what Riley Beckett and the other, his his friend that we see all the time. As He's a character actor. He is in, I call, he played the brother of a show, like, according to Jim, I believe it was. He looks like the poor man's Patton Oswalt. That's what I was calling him. Yeah, yeah, he played the brother for, I believe it's uh, to the wife of According to Jim, mm -hmm. that show. And it was basically just them, daily life, and then you got you got a real good shot of what kind of food they ate. It was our, uh, uh, MREs, pretty much, wasn't it? Yeah, and I was kind of like, I can see why they cut this out. Yeah, well, it was, it was, not, it was just a, a little touch of world building, pretty much, um... I think that they got the point across that, yeah, everything's rationed, so, you know, and they did, you know, retouch upon that when uh, Raleigh shows up to Hong Kong for the first time sitting in the mess hall, and he's like, oh, bread, I haven't seen that, and, you know, her gives that mention, he's like, oh, Hong Kong, open port, we got, we, you know, we still got all the goods, so, you know, it was one of those moments where it's like, I could see Guillermo sitting there, it's like, well, we are, you know, we we talk about this later, okay, let's, 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 cut, let's cut this out, move on. Right. Right. And then the next one that actually I believe we saw in a trailer, it was titled Excuse Me. Yes. It's the, yes. It's the one where right after, you know, they accuse Newt Charlie mm -hmm. Day to be a kaiju groupie, mm -hmm. which I still need to get that tank top that says that. <laughs> and then, you know, of course, he says, I've always wanted to see one up close and blah, blah. And yeah. then Riley, uh, Riley was like, mm, you don't want that. And then he gives this mini speech about how, you know, we need to understand the kaiju and all this stuff. And then, however, Riley was like, no, we need to blow them to pieces. And then there's a, you know, they do their arguing. And then I guess he, like, you know, Riley gets in the last word. And then Newt is saluting. And he goes, also, who are you saluting to? Yeah. And then, like, Charlie's just real awkwardly standing there. But yeah, but no, it was I mean, cut out. but yeah, if you watch the previews like we have a million times, that's it's one of those sequences where you're, I, you know, you don't really think about it at first, but when you go back and you watch the trailer after you see the movie, it's like, wait, that wasn't in there, and that does happen all the time. We actually, what was it? Uh, I think the best case in point when I was uh, younger, when this came to mind, was um, 
uh, Half Baked, the Dave Chappelle movie. Yes. I was, I, you know, I was, I saw the preview a million times before I saw the movie, and there was a sequence where Jim Burr is talking about being a professional meter hopper, and then you know he's hopping over a parking meter and then hits himself in the crotch. Not in the movie, and I always says, you know, that's when I first learned. It's like, oh yeah, they put, you know, it's you know, it's either from an earlier cut or it's just something that the. Um, the, the trailer people are like, yeah, this works. This this sell this is a selling point, and you know it doesn't always make the final cut. At least it was here, so we you know get to see. It makes me wonder what else they really. I mean, it's it's those tiny moments that usually stand out the biggest. Yes, yes, and you allow to see one of the main reasons why Del Toro hired mm-hmm. Charlie Day. Mm-hmm. Um, I because at WonderCon he goes. No, it's amazing. You know, one of the reasons why I hired him is because in one episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, he was talking about rats mm-hmm. or something like that. It was that episode. He goes, and he just goes into this great spiel. And I was like, I want this guy in my movie. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a great deleted scene that can further show his acting abilities, as most people only know him from Always Sunny. Always Sunny, or maybe Horrible Bosses. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> um. And then the next one that I actually really liked, because I actually had that thought, I can't say overanalyzing, but when Newt makes his own little drift compatible yeah, they, machine. They never show you where, where he gets all the crap from for it. Yeah, and then this title, the title of this deleted scene was called Theft, mm-hmm. and you got to see him go in and just take things. Like, he goes into kind of like an underground kind of storage unit mm-hmm. where it's like a wired cage. Mm-hmm. Some people have those in the, their apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. And he was just taking equipment, making equipment, and I love the part. It's his mannerisms when he takes something and he sees something else and he drops that item. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, no, this will do. Yeah. And, and I, This was actually a scene I thought probably could have stayed in. It's only like – and mind you, most of these scenes are only roughly like what – a minute, like a minute and a half, which sometimes is a long time, but like this particular sequence, I think it was only like 45 seconds. It, it was just him like going through. It's just, it was a nice Charlie Day moment where, you know, it's just him rummaging, making, you know, you just get to see his physical aspect. It, it did, in, you know, give you an idea. It's like, you know, because when you see in the movie, you just think he tore apart his own, um, his own laboratory to build the drift machine. Not realizing that none of that equipment's really there for him to access, so he had to actually go into, you know, where they store like many of the extra parts for the Jaegers. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean, and I loved that scene. Mm-hmm. I felt that scene should have stayed in there because it's always moments like that. You do have people that come out of a movie and go like, "I don't understand where she got that dress. Yeah. She just showed up and she was wearing the." Yeah. Yeah. Seeing she had a blue dress, you always have those people that overanalyze. Mm-hmm. I know, yeah. It that well, it that's a plague upon movies today. It's uh, Pacific Rim was really one of those where people kind of sat down like, well, this doesn't make sense. That it's like, okay, if, if you're not buying into the aspect of you know we you know humanity has built giant walking tanks to fight enormous aliens, then you know then you really shouldn't even be watching this movie. You're sitting there just nitpicking everything. Um, <clears throat> I read a lot of that back with Iron Man 3 where everyone's like, well, this doesn't make sense. And, you know, this, it's just like, just, you know, it's it, inconsequential to the rest of the film. It's just, you know, an editing, you know, cut where they probably said, look, if you're, it, Robert Rodriguez said it best with, um, in his commentary for um, El Mariachi, there's a sequence where um, 
the mariachi walks up to town, and he gets a coconut, and he uh, walks off, and he's drinking the coconut, and he says, he's like, oh, crap, I forgot, you know, he says, he, he says it in the commentary, he's like, I, f- I forgot to shoot a scene with mariachi giving the coconut guy money, so, uh, his his whole his whole thing was well I either cover it in post or I just kind of go along with it and just kind of just if people are sitting there already nitpicking the fact that he just got a free coconut and that's taken out of the movie then I've not done my job as a filmmaker and thus why are they even bothering to watch this? <laughs> oh my goodness! No, so that like all three, I mean, with the exception of the wall of life rations mm-hmm. i liked excuse me and theft mm-hmm. however the next one which is the last one which is catch you in the drift dad mm-hmm. i personally didn't like it it's a scene where uh her son Check. you know and yeah just kind of having to do this tiff and i like to call it the whiners moment yeah you know he has daddy issues yeah there's no need for you to listen to him whine about how he wasn't really a dad and so he was more of a dad in the drift than he had in the real life with him growing up, and it was this whole thing. I was like, no. It just, yeah, it just made him a complete douchebag, other than just being an asshole that you know, a cocky asshole, which suited him much better. The you know they they play up in like um, when the stacker is getting on his ass when you know they're when he's asking, it's like, you know, we're not exactly drift compatible, and stacker's just like, look, I bring nothing to the drift. You are, you know, you you're just uh, a hotshot with daddy issues. That I easy to figure out day one. That's exact. That's all it needs to be. So yeah, definitely this this was the scene that you know I'm glad Guillermo left on the chopping block because really you, as as you know he'll say as you know we'll touch upon later on in the commentary. It's like this was a group thing. We need to you know everyone had to come together. And if you didn't like Chuck at that point. You know, there's no reason to really get behind him in the end when he makes that ultimate sacrifice. Right, right. And I felt, felt like people are not, uh, depending on the audience, mm-hmm. I was going to say people aren't stupid, but then I realized I may have spoken too soon. <laughs> I mean, there are smart people and, you know, people that are not so smart, but we all get the drift that he's got dad issues. We know that he's kind of got anger issues and everything. We mm-hmm. didn't need that extra one minute or whatever of him, like, whining or fighting with his dad like we know we know that you have problems Mm. but yeah and then there was only four deleted scenes in which we were really surprised i was surprised about i don't know if you were you know in that honestly that last one was probably the one of most substance if you will like that was like the only thing that really like he sat there it's like oh okay that was a like a that would have been a glaring omission had it been in the movie and taken out all the other ones are just pretty much um kind of like little filler scenes little uh just uh uh, moments, you know, uh, just to truck the movie along. Right, right. And of course, after deleted scenes, everyone likes to do blooper reels, which mm-hmm. I didn't know existed until, <laughs> I meant like in the past, yeah. until I watched Jackie Chan movies. Uh-huh. And it continues in the end mm-hmm. with like thing. And then I guess it kind of, it didn't break my idea or shatter the glass as you will in the how i met your mother reference but mm-hmm. i always took movies as like a really serious making moment but mm-hmm. it's actually really i'm used to it now it's kind of relieving to see them just be people you yeah. know just actors like doing that stuff before i was like no it's not in the tone of the movie but now i'm like you know i, I kind of enjoy them actually now. oh exactly there's uh, i mean there, there could probably be a whole you know just channel dedicated to to B-roll of bloopers and stuff. Just there's that much out there, so... 
It is. There's. I just. I was watching them because to me it's more of an enjoyment. So I didn't really have that mm-hmm. many notes. But I noticed four things. Wrinkle pulls. Rinko, if I, um, excuse me if I said her first name wrong, but mm-hmm. Rinko pulls a Miley Cyrus every <laughs> time. However, she does it with much more class mm-hmm. and cuteness to it. And by a Miley Cyrus, we mean she sticks out her tongue. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that? Yeah, she does that a lot. I think that's a Japanese thing because I've seen um, the plethora of Japanese movies I've owned. I've seen the, uh, the, the few behind-the-scenes stuff like younger actors. That's a, that's a big thing where... You know, they're them goofing around. It's like a tongue. You know, they stick out their tongue, like uh, kind of like um, giving you the raspberry. Yeah, I might be yeah. I might be overstepping the fact that it's a Japanese thing, but it seems to be a staple of uh, Japanese goofing off, if you will. Yes, yes, and I like, but she does it much more cute. I think Miley did it for a different reason. She did it because, because I think it's just... oh yeah, because Miley was a whore when she did it, and plus she looked like a a, a giraffe with Down syndrome, and that's. And that, that that that's really bad to people, you know, drafts with Down syndrome because she's just giving them a very bad name. Right, right. <laughs> oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I was no, I was still thinking and that's the first thing I noticed. And I actually had a friend walk by and go, Why is her tongue out in every blooper scene? I was like I was like, I don't know, but it's cute when she does it. Mm-hmm. But no, the next thing I, I like cute Subtle, I would say, I guess I use cute because I'm a girl, but like mm-hmm. the subtle mistakes, especially like when Ron Perlman and Charlie Day were looking out <laughs> and then they're talking about something and mm-hmm. all of a sudden you feel the, like they look to the right and mm-hmm. you feel, you hear Guillermo yell, Kaiju is on the left. <laughs> like real, mm-hmm. just letting them know. And then they're just like, oh, okay, head turns to the left. Mm-hmm. And I always think it's directions like that that are. It's just small mistakes that are actually funny. Not the mistakes itself, but, like, the humor of the situation. I would pay good money just to see the behind-the-scenes stuff of every movie Guillermo and Braun have done. Because they, they are pretty much the modern-day John Carpenter and Kurt Russell, in my opinion. Uh, and you can just imagine the, the shit that they give each other. And it just what's on tape is probably worth its weight in gold. Right, right. Just kind of like, and I really like, I, mean, I think the last thing that they showed was Charlie Hunnam. You know, you see it through the peephole mm-hmm. point of view, but you see Riley walk up with purpose up to, like, Mac- Mako's door, mm-hmm. and then he trips. <laughs> so is that all four points? Actually, I would like to say I really love the part where either they're done filming that scene or that day, but it's all of the crew and the cast they're all they part it like the Red Sea and Del Toro is just walking down, giving everyone high fives, like he's walking like a champ, mm-hmm. walking with purpose. <laughs> and I was kinda like, Oh, he had his moment. That's so great. I like how they added that onto I don't know why it's a blooper, but I do like it. It's it was it wasn't funny, but mm-hmm. it was kinda like these people really enjoyed working with him mm-hmm. and he was really their role model. He's like a big teddy bear. You can't hate him. You just wanna hug him. Yes. I will yes. I will say this. You notice that there was a severe lack of Idris Elba in any of those bloopers. Yes, maybe because he got everything right the first time. Yeah, he seems like that he's British, so he takes his acting very seriously. Yeah. Yeah, he does. And he doesn't strike me as someone that makes a lot of mistakes, but maybe we're wrong. I guess it's depending on the uh the the situation, but I I I doubt there's probably um there's probably 
really much, especially anything that's really worth putting on a, uh, a like a a reel of that sort that's you know worth of you know anyone's time. So you might have flubbed a line here and there, and probably just was like, okay, it's, it's, it's cool again. Right, right. And there's actually, I believe there's a scene where you just see him. It's obviously green screen in the back, but he walks up mm-hmm. through the crowd of people, and then before and then he does his canceling the apocalypse speech. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really seem like there's any mistakes there, but mm. it's just kind of a a background yeah. to just. It was, I believe, it is part of the blooper reel, but it's not like a funny haha blooper. It's more like a behind the scene type of thing. Mm-hmm. So I really like that. And the next thing that I really enjoyed on the special features was they really took a deep look into the four drifts, and mm-hmm. it was called the drift space mm-hmm. because it flashes so quickly through the movie that you don't always get to see everything. And what the DVD did was they showed you all the drifts in which if you actually look closely, you can see Del Toro in one of the scenes. (laughs) Um, However, and then after it goes through, and it'll stop through different points of the memories in the drift, Mm -hmm. and then notes will pop up and then tell you kind of things about the character. Mm -hmm. And the first one that they did was Riley Beckett. Mm -hmm. And you actually find out that he has a sister... And, which I want to know what happened to her, but also I've always wondered what his age was, and it says that he's 27, I thought he was like 30. Well, if you do the math, the movie were, let's see, it was seven years into the war, so it was 20, let's see, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, so 20, yeah, it was what, 2020 when the movie, when the movie starts? Mm-hmm. When Gypsy Fights Knife had, say, five years later, so you figure he's like See twenty three, then yeah, it's about twenty seven. That that'd be about right. It would actually right. age him properly because you know they did kind of, they kind of um, gave him a, just a tad look to kind of de-age him by about a couple of years in that opening. Right, right. Yeah, they're pretty good with that. I noticed like with just a little bit longer hair, kind mm-hmm. of flopped to the side, mm-hmm. you look younger. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then you find out all kinds of things, and they kind of give a personality profile, like how his parents met. Mm-hmm. There's a part that I didn't understand, which was his ruling planet was Mars. Do you remember seeing that? Like, for every character, they said, like, what their ruling planet was. I don't know if that's, like, a Zodiac thing that's that, happening. I didn't notice, because, mind you, I watched them, like, four times in the theater, so every time those drift sequences come by, I'm trying to pick out everything. I never noticed the planet stuff, though, because I, I guess it's just I'm, like, uh, a couple frames of... in. Um, behind in my head when I'm looking at that stuff. So, yeah, I didn't I didn't get the planet thing either. I don't get it. Yeah, cuz up with the with the personality profile, it'll say like age, you know, how parents met. It'll say ruling planet Mars. I'm like, I'm sorry, is this a zodiac? Mm-hmm. Am I am I confused? But what I did like is they gave a background of how him and his brother grew up mm-hmm. and that like his brother always protected him and brought him into the world of comic books. Mm-hmm. And like on his 10th birthday, on Riley's 10th birthday, he somehow, if I read my notes correctly, not only gave him a superhero cape, but made him like a small armored suit so they could always be superheroes together when they grew up, you know, and that he would always be there to protect him. You know, in the beginning when they're like, we're not the most athletic, but we always got into yeah. scraps and fighting. And I felt like that part of the personality profile that they wrote was very touching because you saw how close he was with his brother. Mm-hmm. And why they want, why they ended up being pilots, which is a, 
appropriate career choice. Which, if you do read the graphic novel, they do go into a bit more. Yes, yes, we can always do another wonderful episode podcast with oh, your, we yeah, will. your <laughs> yeah, we with will. the graphic novel. And um and then from there they went with personality profile in which some were pretty interesting, like he's most happy when mm-hmm. and it says alone and people watching. Mm-hmm. And it says current significant person in their life, Mako Mori. Mm-hmm. And then it says role models that they looked up to. And I thought that was really interesting. I actually started laughing. Some of them were Dennis Leary, Winston Churchill, Paul McCartney, and Bruce Lee. <laughs> now, that that all came out of that Bible that uh, uh, Del Toro and Travis Beecham wrote. Um, I know that they had the... Um, Beecham said, I think they made like a 1,200-page just character Bible to everything in the world, which is, you know, um, every, you know because Del Toro gets super detailed in a lot of stuff. Yeah, um, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, what um, what uh, 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 I'm sorry, Edgar Wright did for Scott Pilgrim when he wrote up all those little like notes for uh, each of the actors, you know, for the backgrounds of their characters, something that they know about the character, but the rest of the audience won't know. I think. Yeah, and yeah, and I and as I was just by Riley alone, mm-hmm. I was already kind of like, oh my god, yeah. it's amazing how detailed they go into the background of these characters that some of us will never see in the movie if mm. you don't get the special features or you don't get to read the graphic novel or you don't get to read the novelization. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it's amazing that they've created this world. Did not know it was that many pages, though. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, it's it's pretty thick, but knowing Del Toro, it's he's probably just like, oh, no, no, you got to eat, you know, they, we got to, like, put down their favorite breakfast cereal, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> It, it it goes. It's a testament to his to his knack to detail. It's it's you know him like guys like him and James Cameron are like that. Like uh, when we go on later on, there was there was when I was listening to the commentary, there was a lot of stuff he was pointing out that you know I saw that movie projected on IMAX and there was stuff I didn't notice until he was pointing out, and that's just the kind of detail that they put into it. So remind me to come back to that when we go on, when we go into uh, the movie later. Oh no, no problem, mm-hmm. no problem. And of course, after Riley, mm-hmm. they do uh, Mako. Mm-hmm. And with uh, Mako, you actually find out that her father is a 20th generation blade maker mm-hmm. and that they're, that they're from Kyoto. So the whole sword thing will make sense to many people now. Yeah. Um, his par- her parents, and I'm not surprised, had a prearranged marriage. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the sad part is, I, if, if, for many of those who do not know the Japanese culture or Eastern cultures, they weigh very heavily on you having sons as opposed to daughters. Yeah. So apparently her mother had two miscarriages, both boys. Mm-hmm. And so Mako is an only child, and she was a girl. She's mm-hmm. a girl. So obviously she grew up to be a tomboy. Mm-hmm. She's very close to her dad. Um, I was very surprised that she is 22, and it actually gave her her birthday, April 23rd, 2003. Wow. So... By today's standards, she'd be 10 years old. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So now we know that she's 10 because Mm -hmm. you actually find out which they go back. uh, And they explain this whole thing, which is I find even more depressing. And when I told my roommates, they're like, you should not have given us that story, (laughs) which they gave this whole thing into why Mako was the only survivor of the kaiju attack in Tokyo. Because, like, you know, her family went into town to sell the swords and all this stuff, and she, it was implied that those were like a new pair of red shoes, mm-hmm. because, I mean, I'm a child once, 
Mm-hmm. And I understand she had this weird obsession with her shoes. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like a little kid, when you get something new because they were shiny, you you don't want to lose it. And so as they were running through when Onibaba was chasing them, mm-hmm. her shoe fell. Mm-hmm. And she let go of her dad's hand and she went back mm-hmm. to go get the shoe. And by the time she turned around, all she saw was ash falling from the sky. Mm-hmm. I would like to think it's building ash. Mm-hmm. However... For those who watch Doctor Who, that ash could be carcasses. Mm-hmm. Well, they, that, see, that was the thing, though. They didn't give you any indication that um, that Oni Baba had any, uh, like, uh, like special attacks. Like, it was just a, a, a giant crab. But if it had, like, a heat beam of some sort, then, yeah, that would have made perfect sense. Yeah, it is, because when I, the first time I saw the movie, mm-hmm. the first thing I thought is, girl, where are your parents? Why are you by yourself just in a street? Yeah. Like. How are you the only survivor? Were you in a dumpster? Mm -hmm. What was happening? But it makes sense when you watch deleted scenes or special features. And then they went into personality profile, which is uh, her secret hope. Mm -hmm. It's either her, as I try to read my notes, uh, that her secret hope or her fear, I can't remember which one, is that her destiny is greater than her circumstance. Mm -hmm. Which... Now that I'm reading it out loud, I, I think it's her secret hope and not her secret fear. Yeah. But she's most happy, I think much like Riley, um, being quiet and like being alone and rebuilding or seeing machines mm-hmm. as she grew up close to her dad. And, you know, she learned a lot about swords and how they're made. You know, her father was a blade maker. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. And then the two things that I really enjoyed was her current significant love is Riley Beckett and training. Mm-hmm. And I was like, training is not a noun, <laughs> but I do like, I do like, I was like, it's such in the Japanese culture, like work is your, your love. Yeah. That's, that's why they're ahead of, in you know, ahead of us in many, many things. It is. It is. And her heroes are Katano and Stacker Pentecost parentheses sensei. Mm-hmm. So I haven't had a chance to look up Katano yet, but I should. I feel like it's a name I should know. Um, however, yes, and those were her things I thought was really interesting. And and then right after that, they went straight to uh, Newt, mm-hmm. which I thought was really, really funny. They They went into... He is so interesting. I always felt like Newt... And uh, his, his, the name skips me, his professor mathematician frenemy. Oh, yeah, I'm blanking on it right now, too, because you put me on the spot. But yeah, yeah, yeah. his buddy, yeah. The, the, the 3PO to his R2. Yes, I was going to say uh, the Dark Knight Rises feared bodyguard mm-hmm. when he heard, his, uh, he heard his boss going down. Mm-hmm. Um, however, yeah, so they were going, apparently his Newt's father and mother, father was a piano tuner, mother was an opera singer, they had an affair, despite both of them being married, mm-hmm. and she left him behind after he was born. Aww. So he's born in, at, apparently he's 1980, mm-hmm. January 19th, 1980, and it was really funny. It says, physical appearance, 45 years old, emotional, 12. <laughs> and then it said, and it said, uh, ruling planet, Uranus, sorry but true. 
Well, you know who that kind of describes, too, a little bit? That describes Del Toro, because that's about the age he is as well. Yeah, it is. He's, yeah, they're about 40. He's about 48. Mm-hmm. And which, oh, also, Mako was wonderful. She gets two ruling planets, Saturn and Venus. I'll never get the ruling planet thing. That's something that we ever get Travis Beachman on. we got to ask him about. Yeah, yeah, and it, I think it's really interesting. I was like, hmm. And, and it is appropriate that Newt says Uranus. Mm-hmm. I don't know, just the word and the planet in itself. Um, and I guess his negatives in life is that he couldn't sing for the life of him, but he thinks that he can. Mm-hmm. His secret dream is to be a rock star. Uh, he is most happy singing, dancing, playing the keyboard, and proving uh, Gu- Gutenberg, or his name, Goat. Gu- I'm just going to call him Goaty. Mm-hmm. Proving Goaty wrong. So I thought that was really funny, because that's what makes him most happy. And it says his present love interest is whoever will take him. <laughs> and the people that he looks up to is uh, Bear Grylls, Fox Mulder, and Rockstars. Makes sense. And so I thought that was really funny. And of course from there they talked a little bit more about who he is and how him and his C-3PO met. And they were saying how he's, uh, he started talking to Hermes. Mm-hmm. I guess the, uh, Hermes Gutlove. Mm-hmm. I can't pronounce the name. <coughs> Excuse me. G-O-T-T-L-E-I-B. Mm-hmm. He started talking to Hermes uh, Gutlove. I'm going to say Hermes. Mm-hmm. He's the son of the original Jaeger programmer inventor. And so uh, Goatee mm-hmm. uh, stimulated Newt's mind, and apparently they wrote passionate letters back and forth, like, you know, describing all kinds of intelligent things and academical papers. When they finally agreed to meet in 2017, they instantly disliked each other. <laughs> and so I was actually kind of hoping that under his, like, love, present love interest that mm. Goatee was there. <laughs> It was Hermes. I hope that it would have said Hermes. Well, that's an interesting tidbit, too, because that's the same year that, that, you know, the shit started hitting the fan, too, in the, right. the timeline, because that's the year that we open up in the film, and that's when uh, Yancey dies and uh, Gypsy gets uh, messed up by Knifehead. Yes. Yes, and I thought that was really interesting. I was like, I loved it, because it was, like, so straightforward. It was, like, wrote passionate letters, mm. really stimulated each other's minds, uh, decided to meet in 2017, and was, like, instantly disliked each mm. other. And I thought it's so funny how you can get along with someone so well online or over the phone, mm-hmm. but the moment you meet, it's their, it's their, you know, personalities or quirks or mannerisms yep. that just kick you way. off. Yep. But the, the, exactly. there's something to those characters, though. They they have a, they, I don't know if it's like, uh, I can't put my finger whether or not they actually do like each other or if it's just a, an odd mutual respect they have for each other. It, <laughs> it is. It is weird. They're they're lovely frenemies, mm-hmm. and of course, as the movie started, I knew Goatee was going to help him mm-hmm. at the end. So I mean, they fight because they each believe that they're right. Well, it's be- also because uh, Hermes has the better understanding of the um, the atomic structure of of the um, of the. Uh... Oh God! Again, I'm blanking on because they put me on the spot. The the portal. <clears throat> He's, right. Yes. Like he he's not he's not the kaiju expert, he's just he he's more the the the, the tech guy for uh, for everything else that involves the the other universe. Right, right, and I always felt like 
I know in a lot of sci-fi, it always seems it's so technology heavy, it's so everything, but I think there is a point to understanding biology or zoology. Because if you are dealing with aliens or if you're dealing whatever movie you're in, mm-hmm. you're going to need to kind of know. Exactly. So I thought that was really important. Um, and I apologize if everyone can hear me typing. Katano was a character that I looked up and it's just blinking on me. So now I'm like, I have to know. It's that one thing that's going to bug eat, me. It's like, away at you. <laughs> it is eating away. Like, where did Newt get all that equipment mm-hmm. to make a fake drift? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, as my page loads. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I didn't know if you had anything that you really liked about the drift. No, no, the drift stuff. It was more more interesting than the fact of um, of uh, how they actually shot it in retrospect when uh, I was looking at everything. You know, they, yes, and I, they go into that right yeah. in the regular DVD. Yeah, they do because when I saw I saw that first, and I was looking at that stuff. I'm just like, I was more impressed with just the way that um, the Guillermo set up those shots because everything they they made everyone dress in black and white, and then he added the blue light filters over everything. So everything is pretty much done, um, you, you know, um, in camera with just a little bit of post with the editing, you know, the the speed up and all that. But it was nice because. Um, like I, I, here's the idiot I am. You don't. Re- I never realized that this. You know this. You know young Mako in the the uh, scene where she, you know you see her and her past. You know they reuse that same girl for all the drift sequences. But you know it's going by so quick yes. that it's just like oh yeah they get, she got more than one scene. That's nice. Yes, it is. It is. And apparently I just looked up Katano and obviously Google's wonderful. They pulled up the Katano Hotel in New York. Something about a jazz club. Um, the only one I find, and you know, you guys feel free to comment if you guys know who you know Del Toro and Travis is actually referring to. But the closest one we found was Takashi Katano, who uh, is yeah. a Japanese film director, comedian, singer, actor, Best film editor, known as the asshole teacher in Battle Royale. Yeah, and that was kind of like that would be a very odd choice. But he's for, also, but he plays like a heavy in a lot of um, Kenji Fugu's hockey films too. Right, right. So I was kind of like, okay, you know, now I've I've learned something. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and the next part that took me a while and to go through because I really loved it was the Shatter Dome. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, so jealous <laughs> that they thought of that word first. The Shatter Dome. Because it is a kick-ass name. Kind of like in Doctor Who, when River Song, you find out the name of her prison, mm-hmm. and it's called Storm Cage. Yeah. My friend who's a writer goes, F-balls! Mm-hmm. Moffat, you beat me again. That's an amazing <laughs> name. It is. It's, it's simplest. And, you know, it also sounds very... It has that action-y, yet, uh, almost slight anime tone to it, but it's just English enough that you're just like, God damn it, that just sounds... It's a metal word in, in you know, in the the past tense purpose of it. You know, it's just, it's, it's fucking hardcore. Yes. Yes. And I really liked it. I was like, Oh my God. Mm. Cause usually shatter is not really yeah. a uh, positive term. But it's like, we're storing giant goddamn robots in this place. So yeah, so of course we're calling it the shatter dome. Yeah. But then dome, just adding yeah. the word dome. It's makes because it it's, so it's just, it's a place that, you know, uh, Epic cannot, it, you can barely contain the Epic inside of this place. Yeah. 
and I thought that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, however, they broke when you when you clicked on the Shatter Dome, they kind of broke it into several parts. And the first part is the animatics, mm-hmm. or I like to call the animation part. It's kind of like I would describe it best to people as motion comics with some sound, but like no dialogue. It's a it's a moving storyboard, pretty much. It's a moving storyboard, exactly. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of I have a lot of friends who are storyboard artists, and they put so much work into it because before they make a shot, mm-hmm. they kind of have to draw it out. And they had, I believe, five of them. And some of them, you know, I put little notes. Some of them I didn't really have much to say. Maybe, Chris, you may have something. But the first one that they had was the Anchorage Coast, mm-hmm. which was pretty much shot for shot what happened. Yeah. It's Grandpa and Little Grand, Grand Boy mm-hmm. just kind of walking along. And then you see Gypsy Danger and things happen. So I was like, oh, okay. You know, it was like standard. Mm-hmm. And then the next one was Tokyo Street. Um, where you got to see more scenes of the people every day, kind of through Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty interesting. I think it's also kind of standard. Mm -hmm. And the next one is obviously the Hong Kong Bay, Mm -hmm. which I think is also pretty standard. However, the last two that I really liked was the anti-kaiju refuge, refuge, Mm -hmm. because what you see is different it would actually showed up in the film because from what I could tell from the sketches, it's uh, both Ron Perlman's character and Newt that are hiding in the kaiju refuge. Interesting. See, I love when that kind of stuff happens where it's like they, they change, they kind of, it's a, it might have been like a last minute script change and uh, pretty much it was simple word. It's like, okay, we just take Perlman out, you know, and we just change some dialogue. But that kind of stuff I always love when that kind of stuff creeps in. Yeah, it does. And to go back to the Tokyo Street, it's the it's the scene where it's a pretty long motion comic, but it's the scene where you get to see Mako stuck in her drift and you see her as a little girl. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of the scene of her being chased by Oni Baba mm-hmm. and all this other stuff and you and it's it's a long chase sequence. I can see why they cut a lot a lot out of it. Mm-hmm. However, the most interesting part is you see Mako go through Riley. Oh yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so right. They're talking you. about that like um uh, it, it's talked about one of the, the features where, um, you know, when you're inside the drift, you can't really interact with each other. Like, you can talk to each other, but you can't, like, touch each other to, to a point. Like, um, like if you're sitting inside, like, uh, Raleigh was just sitting inside Mako's memory, so she couldn't hear him, but he really couldn't interact with anything there. But because of the budgetary reasons, because it would just, it would have had to set up for more, you know, effect shots... You know, they just said, okay, well, Raleigh's there. He never touches anything, so you never really see, you know, him have an effect on the environment in her mind. Right, right. And another thing, of course, the big one you and I have talked about is the last one of the uh, the animation, the kind of moving storyboard, was the Pacific Ocean, mm-hmm. which is when, uh, of course, Mako's pod, escape pod, comes up first, mm-hmm. and then you see Riley's come up, and then she freaks out. She swims over. They drew them. Yeah, they were kissing. Mm-hmm. They kissed. So you can see in the original that they kiss, and Riley pulls back, and he's got like, I can only describe as mini Thor hair, <laughs> which it's long and blonde and flowy, and in the motion comic it's flowing. Mm-hmm. The wind's blowing, it's flowing. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, that's interesting. Maybe because I'm a girl, I noticed the hair. Mm-hmm. But Mako, they almost drew her exactly the way she looks, with the bangs and the hair down to the shoulders, but. I don't know if that was just they were in a hurry. They drew him with longer hair, or originally I don't know what it was. They might have had him with. They might have. Had, they might have had him with longer hair at one point. Like they wanted to keep the um, 
you know, maybe the the the, the um, lost soul aspect, if you will, because that that's a staple. It's like when a you know, like especially when a hero falls, like he kind of goes into a stupor, he grows up the beard, grows up the hair. Like it's the I don't give a shit look. You know, it's it turning into almost like a, a drifter. And they might have, you know, that might have been something that at one point they're like, ah, we'll kind of let him keep a little bit of, like, long hair, but it looks like something they just scrapped all together, maybe. Yeah, it was in the motion comic, when you saw his hair flow, I was kind of like, this is like a Thor hair product mm-hmm. commercial. Like, like Achilles from Troy. Yes. When they showed that yeah, trailer. Nice with hair. <laughs> lovely Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. And the next part of the Shatter Dome section of the special features, I got super excited which was the concept, the entire next section, which is called concepts. Mm-hmm. So you got to see concepts of things. And the first section, the concepts were the kaijus. Mm-hmm. And they had such amazing, <laughs> detailed work. Alex and Guy Davis mm-hmm. did some amazing work. And the first one was the trespasser. And, you know, I was like, oh, okay. I made notes of the ones that I really loved. Mm-hmm. And after trespasser, they had knife head mm-hmm. and, I was like street sharks. Does anyone remember? <laughs> yes, uh, you're talking to a, a child of the '90s who still holds onto his affinity for cartoons of days of yore. So I have I know street sharks very well. If you don't, if you the listener don't know street sharks, pause this podcast, go to YouTube, just look up street sharks <laughs> intro. Pretty much in the '90s, every the mid '90s was a was a magical time for cartoons because. They were there was a there was a weird window where they were moving out of toy product placements and into having a little more quality story. But there was also a point when everything had to have a message and be kind of ethnically diverse too. But in that there was a year or two window between that. So we're talking like the like out of the ripple of a of a water drop. We're talking about the very center, this nuggety center where everything for a good two years was extreme. You had G.I. Joe Extreme. <laughs> you had Street Sharks, which were these muscle-bound, giant, ripped shark men that would, you know, cut through the street. And they were extreme because they rode skateboards and drove bikes and everything. And that was the 90s equivalent of extreme. And there was also Samurai Pizza Cats. Oh, I love Samurai Pizza Cats. You, you know, I'm going to have you on one of my podcasts one day where we can just reminisce about 90s cartoons. Oh, it was so good. I loved the 90s. Uh, Extreme Extreme Ghostbusters was probably the the best out of that whole bunch because there was nothing really extreme about them, but you just had to put extreme to get, you know, a child's attention at that point. And mind you, this is the era of of Surge Cola. So before energy drinks, but when Mountain Dew reigned supreme, someone dared say, no, no, we could do more sugar and more caffeine than Mountain Dew. Exactly, and it reminds me mm-hmm. when you said Surge Cola and Extreme because it just describes the 90s, mm-hmm. even down to our clothing of choice. Although the 80s, I think, was more out there. However, one mm-hmm. comic books, their holographic covers, foil like foil covers, pop ups. I don't know what was Imagine happening with the comics. Everything was drawn by Rob Liefeld. That's how the look of everything <laughs> was. Like just muscle bound uh, dudes, just completely ripped in order to keep bodies like that they would have to be working out like eight hours a day and not be going on missions to be doing whatever extreme thing they would be doing and then women with tiny tiny waist big hips but no ass and like huge boobs and like hair like super kelly bundy 
you know, mid-run Married with Children here, where it's just very pompadourish and just flowed. Exactly. Mm. And with Search Cola, for those who also have not seen, after you guys are done with this podcast, mm. list, watch the episode of 30 Rock, <laughs> where Jenna Maroney and Serge Cola. It was a really good episode. Hey, I, I fell out of my seat watching that. I, I couldn't believe cause I, it. I was one of those kids that was addicted to Serge Cola. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And then little did I know, five years later, what Red Bull will come around, and it was just like, yeah, it gives me the, the un, unnecessary energy that I need, but it doesn't have the flavor. It, you know what? The real sad thing is I'm going to have to go look for one. I, as a kid growing up, my mom wanted me to be healthy and have good teeth, whatever. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's part of the Asian-American upbringing where moms can be sometimes strict, mm-hmm. but in a good way. Mm-hmm. I was not allowed to have soda mm-hmm. or anything with carbonation. Oh. So I wasn't able to have Surge Cola. Yeah, but... you were one of those kids. Like, they, <laughs> like I, I love my mother. She did a pretty decent job. But the one thing I do love that my about my parents and their upbringing, me and my brother, was their nonchalant attitude towards a lot of stuff. It was, um, can we have some soda? Yeah, just don't drink all of it. You can have a a can. Moderation. Yeah, it was moderation. Mo- it was yeah. moderation, but it was but it was like, well, can we have surge? Sure. My mom drank diet Pepsi, so she tried to force that crap down our throats. To this day, I don't like any diet soda because of that. But she yeah. was not against because my dad didn't like him either. So my dad was all about having Pepsi or Coke in the house. So we drank a lot of those. And then every once in a while, she would buy us Mountain Dew, but no one else would drink it but my brother and myself. And then when Surge hit the market, I was just having her buy two liters all the time. So oh, it was a beautiful two and a half years when that soda was on the shelf. It was. It it must be to you what uh, Coke Black was to me. Because I loved Coke Black. See, my my buddy would 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 counter you back with uh, crystal clear Pepsi, which I said was the devil's drink, because Pepsi was not meant to be clear; it's just unholy. <laughs> it's very true. And now, and now, for my mom who will be listening, now I'm addicted to root beer of all kinds. So look what happened. Root beer's... moderation is key yes. to raising children. But root beer, root beer is not that bad, especially when you get those fancy root beers from like the soda shops. Oh yeah, Sioux City yeah. sarsaparilla is the best. But uh, <laughs> that's true. And on that, to end that note, I miss Fruitopia so much. That was my, oh tr- my that was my drink every day through high school. We had a Fruitopia machine. I would get the uh, the um, strawberry uh, kiwi one, and yes. that was that was my heroin every day. That was my between third to fourth period uh, snack, and I draw that that machine probably got most of my paycheck when I started working. Because I was just getting like two bottles a day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and I was I was content. I was just you know, every time it hit me, if you've seen that, um, if you've seen Requiem for a Dream, when they're shooting up and you just see the eyes get big and you see the stuff going <laughs> through, the, that's what it was for me. And I was just like, ah. Oh. oh my goodness! Mm-hmm. I think for me, and I now 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 after you and I are done podcasting mm-hmm. and we're going through our. Post happiness of the Pacific Rim DVD. I need to look up eBay to see if there's Orbit drink. Oh no, there's all the buy. all of that's on there. Yeah, because it's clear mm-hmm. and it's got little floating jellies in it, oh, yeah. which I think are amazing. I'll tell you this: um, my buddy's brother, going back to Surge, he bought a 12 pack of unopened Surge Cola for eighty six dollars on eBay. 
Holy shit, $86? Yes, it was a whole 12-pack. It was unopened. And then he bought two two-liters that were unopened for $45. I'm like, you are fucking nuts. He said, I don't have anything else to spend on, and I miss Surge Cola. So they came in. I gave him 5 bucks to try one. I don't know what magic they make aluminum cans out of, but I'll be damned <laughs> if it didn't taste like it was bottled yesterday. The bottle stuff, on the other hand, had lost a lot of its carbonation, so it was very flat. But the can stuff still, for the most part, held its held its uh, consistency. Yes, God bless aluminum, mm-hmm. but also please recycle for those who are listening. Yeah. <laughs> so. All right, let, let, let's get back into things. So we digress. Yes. So you guys get to know more about us mm-hmm. as we're ranting about the 90s. Mm-hmm. But the next one that I really liked was Leatherback. Mm-hmm. Because... In the art that they showed you, it showed the detail of damage. Mm-hmm. They drew out the damage, exactly how he would look after he's been blasted. And it's just drawn so well. I wish I could just describe it through a podcast. But it's based, I mean, of course, pick up the book, you know, The Art of Pacific Rim. Mm-hmm. And you will see that they had such a detail. Like, they knew every bone, every gooey thing that comes out of them. They drew it out before they actually made it into the film. And Leatherback, I thought, in that, not my favorite kaiju, but in terms of the way they drew the concept mm-hmm. and how he was going to be damaged, I really did like. Just like Otachi, which is this next one. Mm-hmm. The next ones they call was Otachi and Baby Otachi, mm-hmm. which I thought was really cute. But they really gave into detail the tongue mm-hmm. and the three, I wouldn't say forms, but three levels the way the tongue. You know, it comes out, then another one it's, comes it's, out. It's like the alien tongue. Yeah, alien, and then another one comes out. It's the, and... it's the alien tongue with the reaver mouth, if or the reaver tongue, if you will. <laughs> it's signing back yeah. to the other Del Toro work. <laughs> yes, and I really, you know, I liked the detail of the tongue because when I'm watching the movie, I'm just freaking out <laughs> that Newt is about to be touched by something like that. But, like, my eyes, my brain is not processing the intricate details mm. and the illumination of the tongue. But if you pause your DVD... You can see the concept art and the and the drawings that it went into it. And um, the next one I liked because he reminded me of Killer Croc that has been transformed by a virus in the in, in Batman, mm-hmm. in the Batman universe, was Raiju. They showed a real fast picture, and I'm like, it's Killer Croc. Yeah, because when the outer head shell is closed, it actually looks like a big crocodile. It does. Which, uh, when I when I saw that concept art or before the movie came, I'm like, oh, so that, to me, was like the closest, you know, uh, Toho-looking uh, kaiju design at that point. And then when they revealed, okay, he's got the big flowery head, then it turned into an Ultraman character for me. <laughs> yes. And the next one was a Scunner. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't have too many notes on that. I was like, okay, you know, he's a kaiju. Mm-hmm. And then Slattern, I really like, because he has three tails. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry if I say he for everyone. Obviously, we now know some is a she mm-hmm. or some sort of clone. But I'm going to just say I'm he. Just gonna, I'm going off of, that they're sexless because they're clones anyway. I should say it, actually, yeah. for everyone. Uh, but Slattern had three tails, and I thought that was kick-ass. Oh, yeah, that's how I did the... the uh... I would call it the uh, world, the I don't know, the whirlpool attack, if you will, when it smacked mm-hmm. uh, uh, Striker Eureka. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I wish we saw kind of more of that. And then the next one I liked because I actually 
started laughing. And then the next category was uh, Daikaiju. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard for me to say it without the Asian accent because Da yeah. means D-A-I. It's in Mandarin. And as you know, a lot of uh, kanji, a lot of words from Japan come from, they look like they look like Chinese words. Mm-hmm. Dai, dai or Da means big. Mm-hmm or very large. So you add that as a prefix in front of the word kaiju mm-hmm. and it just Big means monster. really, really super large. And mm-hmm. it showed um if as you hit the forward button, it's a it's a slideshow of various large ones that they drew up but didn't really make it into, you know, the movie. Mm-hmm. And the one I really liked was the worm caterpillar looking one. Yes. Uh, it has like a um Oh god, I saw the concept art for it uh, when Scans for the Book came out. It looks like one of those beautiful, intricate, and delicate caterpillars mm-hmm. that you see during springtime and summertime. But you don't want to touch because yeah. they're freaking venomous. They're freaking venomous. Don't 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 touch it, people. Kids listening, don't touch it. Um, but you know, if you want to capture it in a jar, feed it well, <laughs> make it grow into a beautiful butterfly. It has like an uh, the tail end has like a. Um, I forgot, did they have a stinger, like an acid attack or something like that that they... I do not remember, but I saw it, and I felt like that's such a different one from all the... Like, yeah. just physical form. Well, it's like Onibaba so... stands out the most out of all of them, because it was, yes. like the big, it was a big crab, so... You know, that, that was Onibaba. the one thing I was kind of hoping that, you know, that they would elaborate a little bit more, because, I you know, as much as I enjoyed that they kept with the more reptilian ones, if you will... Um, the, the, one of the great things about Japanese kaiju is that they're of all shapes and sizes. They're insect and all that other the other great stuff. So you know, the, you know, touching upon other stuff like that, the caterpillar one would have been a real interesting one to see. Yeah, no, and I and and yeah, that one, and also the last thing that they have under concept art is maquettes, mm-hmm. and that was really sad because there was no little special slideshow for Onibaba because mm-hmm. he was my favorite. Mm-hmm. I was like, no. Um, I actually wanted some. A friend was like, what do you want for Christmas? I was like, I want an Onibaba like plushie. And they were like, we can't. That's not real. So we're going to have to Etsy it. Mm-hmm. Etsy it and see if we can find it. But Onibaba was my favorite. There is no, on the special features, you guys, there is no uh, detailed look into it. But after Daikaiju is Marquette's uh, in which so detailed and... Because they they get to do a lot of close-ups, especially since our DVD that we bought, it's the Blu-ray version. Mm-hmm. You got to you truly appreciate all the detail and all the work people go into making movies and especially creature movies. Because mm-hmm. now they're doing not stop motion, obviously, or puppetry for some, but they're doing maquettes. They have to draw, they have to do it, and they have to CGI, then they have to shoot it. And I always felt like all that detail, like. And I've always kind of been like, can I just take or steal one of them? Yeah. Well, I know that Del Toro bought a couple of them for his uh, collection, for his um, his Uber house. Right. That, that, that's like one of his things. Like he usually buys a couple of the props um, from like the design department for uh, all of his projects. Right. Right. And I would I would do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I, wouldn't think he would have to buy it. I was kind of hope they would just. Give well, it to you, gotta, you gotta realize though, it's on the it's on the uh, the company dime. Uh, so you know they That's they true. do lay claim to all that. Uh, That's I, true. I think the effects houses usually keep a couple, and then uh, if because uh, I know that Stan Winston Studio kept everything that they did. So. Right, right. So. But like, it's so beautiful, and it's always like when I watch that, mm-hmm. when I look at that, all I can think is like. 
people need to remember that, yeah, the actors are really important, mm -hmm. but the true talent are the people who put, like, hundreds of hours into making little bumps and scales on these Marquettes that mm -hmm. will never see the light of day well, in public. You see, that's the beauty because a little company called Sideshow Collectible yes. did license Pacific Rim, and uh, they do have a series of statues coming out that are based on the Marquettes. They're not the exact uh, Marquette that they they uh, made for the film, but they are based on the, uh, I believe, the, the the file scans that they gave them. So pretty much, they make up the maquettes, they scan to computer, so they have all the dimensions, and then they can go and tweak them. Because I know that there's a gypsy fighting Slatner uh, statue that I want so bad that's like $600, and it's like three and a half foot high when put together. But it's it's a beautiful piece, but it's all done based off the models that um, ILM gave... Um, uh, sideshow. So oh my if goodness. you have money, you can own one, but more than likely, a, you know, a lot of people don't have the money for those, and so they will just go on as something that people look behind the window, put their hand up, and that single tear comes down, knowing that they, they can never have it. <laughs> I know. I know what you mean. I have friends who go when we go to San Diego Comic-Con. I hope for many of you listeners, you guys can one day make it out. Mm -hmm. And they're just, you know, sneak through the food hatch mm -hmm. in the back or something. But I see it, and it's like, oh, my God, Iron Man, Mark 7, it goes $1,500. Yes. That's like rent. And for some people, that is their entire collection. That's all that they collected are those statues. It's like, it's mm -hmm. not even like a figure. Like, I, I get a figure, and I get the occasional statue, but to just have a massive collection of statues, that is really hardcore. That's in the Godzilla... Um, fandom in the late 90s and early 2000s, the, the model kits, that's the equivalent of what those are today, uh, was the garage right. kits like from Kyoto and uh, X Plus, and those were expensive as hell back then, but those you actually had to put together, so it was like, okay, I could see you're making a hobby out of it, you're not just buying a pre-painted statue just to put as a mantelpiece, and but you want to put nine more with it. Yes, my only fear is that since, I mean, for those who don't know, me and uh, Chris Eaton were based in Southern California. Mm -hmm. Earthquakes! Yes, that's another thing I've heard. <laughs> I've, I've actually, um, I have a couple of uh, smaller statues. I have a King Kong one that I bought. It was a Weta one by, that Sideshow made. It's it's real tiny. I got it when, um, what was it? Uh, Tower Records. For those who don't know, Tower Records was a specialty store that sold records and all kinds of other collectibles. They had a massive shipment of uh, the King, the 2005 King Kong uh, stuff in from uh, Sideshow. I guess they bought out um, a, like the rest of the stock that Sideshow had, and they sold these things for cheap. So the Kong versus T-Rex, it was a, it's a badass piece because it's Kong on top of the T-Rex, the T-Rex is on his back, um, Kong's on top of him, hand in the air, getting ready to just pound the crap out of him. It's only about six inches high, but, you know, there's a point, you know, the T-Rex tail comes all the way out and it sticks out. So I'm always paranoid that if anything falls over on it or if it falls off, that tail's going to break and I'm just going to be weeping manly tears of sorrow over it. So I've <laughs> oh taken in, I've, I've actually sat like a lunatic, sat in my room and looked, okay, where can I put this that if there's an earthquake, nothing's going to fall over? And so I have a flat, low-line... Uh, dresser that it sits in the corner. There's nothing above it. The dresser's wide enough that it will not fall over an earthquake unless it's like a 9.8. Uh, 
and it's it's perfectly aligned that nothing can possibly fall over on it and I make sure that no one's ever in my room so that someone can throw something and hit it so that is the weird kind of uh, the, uh, just detail that I go into that makes me a bit nuts that I am no it's okay mm-hmm. I'm the same way as you and I actually started to invest in museum putty mm-hmm. Because if those who have cats or you just have children or birds or whatever, I mean, obviously, if your roof falls during an earthquake, all, all is screwed. Yeah. But, you know, you can do things to prevent. I put museum putty mm-hmm. underneath it to kind of solidify it onto whatever surface I'm on. Yeah. So at least it won't be, like, knocked out or something like One that. One day I'm going to invest properly into, into proper display cases. So, But I, I'm one of those guys that has to have, like, the lighting and everything on it because I want people to see what I bought. Right. No, no, no. I, I would love to do that, like, glass displays. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so that's what we have on Mar- Marquette's. Now you guys can all uh, indulge in listening to our me and Chris's future plans of display cases. <laughs> and the next one we have are, obviously, after Kaiju are the Jaegers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they show beautiful concept art of Gypsy Danger, Striker Eureka. You know, the two that we kind of see the most. Mm-hmm. And then the other ones are really interesting. Uh, Crimson Typhoon, for those who do not notice, has a headlight. Mm-hmm. The head is just a light, and I may be wrong because I haven't been able to go through all the concept art in the book, but are the triplets in the chest? No, they're in the head. Are they in because, the head? Because, you know, when... Uh, it's a huge light, though. Yeah, I know, when... Uh, when. And I can't tell. Once they show the con pod, I don't know where they are. Yeah, no, they're all pretty much in the head. Um... It's, uh, what is it, I, uh, Travis Beachman was explaining that, um, initially because all the early, um, up until the Mark III's, the, uh, the nuclear reactors were placed in the chest, because that was the only place they could properly hold them, and, you know, send the energy throughout the body and everything that they need, so all the compods were put in the heads. Now, if you're a mech nut, uh, a lot of people would argue that the head is the weakest spot, why would you do that? Uh, there and that's the reason. That's part of the reason why Gypsy's head isn't attached to the body half the time. It's they do that so that way uh, they can prevent um, radiation exposure to the con pod from, yes. from the rest of the Jaegers. Now, the Mark IV is on. I don't know because they did mention that they switched the power sources for him at one point. Uh, I yes. know that at, at, to the point where they are in the movie that Gypsy was the last um, nuclear powered Jaeger. Um, very very giant robo ish if you know that anime, but uh, you know it. Whatever power source they they figured out, which is something they never. Uh, that's the one thing that always kind of bothered me. It's like so, what magical power source did you you know find in you know the five years between when Gypsy was operational to the later you know Jaeger models? That why aren't you running everything off of that? I mean, obviously obviously it has to be something super powerful and cheap enough to keep you know. Uh, the mechs going. Also, I, I lost my train of thought here, but uh, let me get back to it. Uh, do, do, do. Ah, yes. So, anyway, yes. Compods in the head. Uh, we were talking about Crimson Typhoon. It's a giant... Well, the thing is, yeah, with the headlights so big, I wouldn't think... Like, it was the only... It was the only Jaeger that made me doubt where the pilots yeah. were. Well, if you watch when, um, when Otachi takes him out... Uh, when he, uh, or when she clamps her tail onto the head, you actually see the claws come through and crush 
the con pod that may, yeah. and yank them out. So uh, I believe um, in uh, Cherno, because Cherno isn't that big stack, isn't its true head. That's where its reactor is. They kind of built that one a little weirder. So the uh, the head is actually lower on the body where the lights are, and that's where uh, the, the, the pilots are. So that's why when you see... Um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Leatherback, or, you know, crush, you know, the chest region and destroy it, that's when it kills them. Uh, that, you know, that that's when it kills the pilot. So the, I believe the Turner was like the only one that the compa was much lower in the, you know, towards the body than anything else. Right. Okay, there are, because mo- there's just so much going on. Mm-hmm. And now that you said it, yes, I mean, even though I've watched this movie eight times, embarrassingly, mm-hmm. I... It's just because the headlight, the whole head is a headlight. It's not just on its little forehead. Mm -hmm. The whole head is a headlight, which makes me wonder where the hell are the triplets. But, you know, you have reminded me, yes, like when he does get, you know, when Otachi does crush them, you do see one of them go like kind of near one of the triplets. Yeah, it's it's the same same, um, effect like when uh, um, uh, Knife Head ripped into Gypsy's uh, head and you see the claw come through and rip uh, uh, Yancey out. But the the thing with that is though it's what it's got what I uh, uh, Crimson has what I call the uh, Cambot head, which if any of you know Mystery Science Theater, in the very yes. beginning when they show you Cambot, it's just pretty much a giant camera. I it was it's an odd design. I never understood it. That's part of the reason why I'm not really high on the look of Crimson, is the head just bugs the shit out of me. But when you really think about it, there's no way that any of the pilots could actually see outside through any sort of like window effect. I know Gypsy kind of had something like a visor effect, but everything's done through cameras on the Jaegers, which um, I, be it sensors or something like that, seems kind of um, like uh, not a well thought through plan, because what if one of the kaiju just busts one of the sensors, then you're flying blind. But I guess they had that, you know, taken care of somewhere. But yeah, everything's seen through a a screen. You look on all of the... um, Whenever we see inside of uh, the the convod, everything's done up on a monitor, kind of like the bridge of the Enterprise. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And when I saw the head of Crimson Typhoon, mm-hmm. which if you guys actually look, originally they named it Echo Beijing. Mm-hmm. Uh, all I could think is like, is this the little lamp, light lamp, like Pixar's older, more badass brother mm-hmm. from China? Like, why is his head a light? It reminds me of that beginning of Pixar when the little light comes yeah. and squashes down the eye. I was like, oh, what is, why is your whole, I mean, it makes sense because then you can see everything. Yeah. It's bright. But I was kind of like, mm, where, where are those triplets mm-hmm. when I first saw They're it? behind the giant light pretty much. Right. And then the next part, which I really love, is they give you concept art mm-hmm. of all the fallen Jaegers mm-hmm. that has happened between the time you assume you know, before Riley, but also when Riley is a construction worker of the wall. Mm. And, you know, it kind of it kind of goes through a little bit fast. Somehow my DVD decided to kind of do an automatic slideshow instead of me letting manually do it. Mm. But, you know, you saw the Japanese ones where they had swords. Oh, yeah, for that's uh, Tactic Ronin. I love yes. that design, too. Yes, Tactic Ronin. And then there was one with three legs. That was, I think, Horizon Brave. I might be wrong. I, I believe me. I went through. I went through a lot of the stuff um, in the uh, in in the kind of weekend. So I got there's uh, there's Horizon Brave, which I think was the third, the three legged one. I think that was like 
the third Jaeger ever made. Because the first yeah. one was uh, Yukon Brawler, and that's the one that fights Karloff. That was the first ever Jaeger, and that one that's the one that's featured in the uh, the graphic novel, too. Yes, it is. And for those who don't know, go to the Pacific Rim Wiki. Mm-hmm. I even I haven't even had time mm-hmm. to go through everything. However, I will, but I really went through mm-hmm. all the kaiju categories. Yeah. So I'm going to have to do all the Jaeger stuff tonight while I uh, have one working arm. Well, I fell. Mm-hmm. For those who are listening, it's like, what is what is happening? We got a one-armed host? Mm-hmm. Um, no, I just, I, I fell, so I only have one arm right now. And so I'm using my less dominant arm, which is my left hand, and now I'm finding things to do online. <laughs> so I think I'm just going to scroll and, like, finish the rest of Pacific Rim Wiki. Yeah, so that in uh, Romeo Blue, which is, um, when you yes. look at the flat, in the, the opening sequences, when they're giving you the, the brief history, that's the uh, the Jaeger you see in the night vision fighting uh, the kaiju, and that's the one you see in the propaganda footage. It's like, oh, we win second battle. That's um, that's the first American, the proper American Jaeger, I believe. That's one of the two pilots, the twins you see, um, you see talking on the talk show. They're the pilots. Oh, yes. Yes, and it was really good because, like, you're talking mm-hmm. about propaganda, which apparently they will show us later. We'll talk about the propaganda posters, but mm-hmm. they also show – if you look at their chest, because they're trying to model a lot of the feel, like with the pilots and everything, the feel of the World War II, which we call our world and nation's greatest war. But there's a lot of nose art, mm-hmm. but it's actually near their chest, and I didn't notice it until I saw it, like, second, third viewing because there's so much stuff going on. They have – like little, they show you how many kaiju kills you have. Oh, yeah. So kind of, they look kind of, I wouldn't say like tally marks, but they're like little heads or symbols of what kaiju is. And you'll just kind of stamp them on to see how many you've killed. And a lot of it I loved is like the nose art. Mm-hmm. There's one of the bulldog and it says Sarge yeah. with like an exclamation point. And of course the American ones is, it's like a sexy military woman mm-hmm. with like grenades or bullets yeah, she's a, holding it's a play off the betty page uh pinup yes yes and then there was one that looks just like astro boy so i was like that's astro boy mm-hmm. on somebody's Which you can actually Jaeger. nika made dog tags with those mm-hmm, symbols on they them, did and they're just a pain in the ass to find right now i've been looking for um the gypsy ones for a long time and nobody has them around here right now sadly enough and I'm going to ask you, are you a gyp... Like, which is your favorite Jaeger? Are you a gypsy or a Eureka? I was Eureka. I love the look of Striker. Like, gypsy one initially because... Mind you, when I start following the project... Because when they announced... Uh, <clears throat> uh, it was a it was a two-prong kind of attack. Uh, a site erroneously reported that Guillermo del Toro was going to be doing the Godzilla movie. I will not mention said site's name right now. If you listen to my other podcast, I rip on them immensely. But they had mentioned that Legendary was using the script called Pacific Rim. It was about giant monsters. They were going to retweak it for Godzilla and have Guillermo check, uh, you know, direct it. They were way off on certain aspects, but they were very on to the fact that Guillermo was going to do that project. So when um, Legendary released the press announcement that Guillermo del Toro's next big film, and mind you, this is coming off of him f- having two movies fall apart on him. He was supposed to do The yeah. Hobbit. And then, and then, like from the mouth of madness, or for the at the mountains Ma- of madness, yeah, which was going to be Tom Cruise and James Cameron was going to produce that damn thing. So, when James Cameron can't get a goddamn movie off the ground, you know there's some problems. <laughs> 
So then, yeah, he hopped in. So he hopped into uh, uh, Pacific Rim, and they announced the just the broad concept. It was giant monsters coming out of the ocean. The world's band together with super weapons to take him on. And the idea that it didn't even cross my mind at the point was it was going to be giant robots. I was expecting like you know they make up super tanks and stuff like that. But you know I thought it was just going to be like a, a f- kind of a more fanciful kind of Cloverfield, but with a Guillermo del Toro touch. So when the project finally started moving along, and Del Toro talks about, it's like, no, no, we're doing big robots, and they're going to be like lifelike robots. And I'm thinking in terms of like Mech Warrior, if you know that game. That's, I, I like to call those more like uh, real world uh, robots, where it's, they look much more functional to what we could actually make today, instead of the very stylized Japanese uh, robots. And then when that first uh, poster came out for um, Comic-Con 2012, which I have, uh, then I realized, oh, no, no, they're they're going full bore with the, the stylized um, Japanese-style robots with the humanoid look. So um, Gypsy was like, okay, cool, I get what they're going with it. It was a kind of a weird look at first, but when they showed Striker, I'm like, Yes, because the the striker design was the closest to what I was expecting personally, so that's why I kind of gravitated towards it. It has that kind of um, Robotech Gundam kind of crossbreed look to it. More Robotech right. than anything else. Ironically, I'm not the biggest Robotech fan in the world. I have not watched all of it. Shocking. But the look is classic, though. I'm like, it's undeniably that's the most Japanese uh, robot out of the whole bunch. Right, right. I get what you mean. Mm-hmm. I get what you mean. But yeah, no, I mean, everyone, I mean, granted, all the pilots from different nationalities mm. ended up switching Jaegers, whatever. But, you know, you're supposed to like Gypsy Danger. Yeah. But Striker Eureka mm. is just more sleek more and sleek. just badass. And I kind of. Badass fast. Yeah, and not, fast not only that, but running. I think um, just the fact that you have. Because um, I, I kind of gravitated towards uh, uh, Hercules' character a bit, too. Like, he's one of the. One of the original cowboys in the Jaeger program, like him and Stacker came up, and like he's one of the last remaining old dogs, literally in the uh, in the running, still piloting out there fighting. Oh and I lo- yeah, I, like, I love that concept a lot. Even though he's with his asshole son, like they're going out there and like he's they're they're so experienced. Like they are, they already have ten kills, and that's on top of whatever. Because in the uh, novelization, uh, uh, Herc and his brother were pilots, and they piloted a. A Jaeger called Lucky Seven, and that's where the when Raleigh talks about the the three man drop they did in Manila. That right. was the last drop that um, Herc did with his brother, and I think Lucky was damaged. Like he wasn't destroyed, but it was just damaged beyond repair. And that's when he got um, Striker, and that's when him and his son started uh, piloting and taking on, uh, you know, uh, uh, Kaiju. Right, and if you and you can see why it's so good because if you for those who went to WonderCon this year of 2013, mm-hmm. they gave out Pacific Rim trading cards, mm-hmm. and when you looked at it, my friends and I were looking at it, and I was like, Striker Eureka has 11 kaiju kills, mm-hmm. but all the other ones, and I was like, what is wrong with Americans? And then like you know, obviously as you watch the movie, it's a very easy to see why. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because it's, you know, better tech. It's better tech. It's quicker. It's faster. It has the um, uh, the missile launch system. It's got the, the, the um, heat blades that come out of the side. And not only that, but uh, just Herc being the more experienced pilot and his son being far more kind of um, gung-ho at, you know, 
taking on monsters. They they kind of they almost have that they don't care if they live or die attitude. So right. like when you actually see Striker for the first time, he's pretty much just wailing the shit out of uh, out of um, the the Sydney kaiju, and they're just beating the crap out of it. And it's literally just a big brawly fist fight, like you would expect. Like the the stereotype I have in my heads of Australians that they're all large strapping men, you know, Amazonian women. They like to have a good time <laughs> and they like to get drunk and beat the crap out of each other. Now, mind you, it's a terrible stereotype in my head, but that's what I like to romanticize Australians as. They're fun people, and they like to fight. I was going to say they're they're like the southern hemispheres of the Irish. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, no, and I hear, and you know, they have the outback, and they're so, like, manly and, and rugged. They and can kill you, too. Like, the, like, even the cats can kill you. Yes. But, like, you know, and then from there, for some reason, the Jaeger, under the concept art, they move from Jaeger to costume. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's pretty standard. They just showed you the blueprint of the different types of clothing that the heroes would wear, you know, how they would costume. Like, you know, the difference between Riley when he suddenly becomes a construction worker mm-hmm. to the pilot's outfit. But the one thing, one note that I did make is for Mako, they showed that she had two layers of clothing. Mm-hmm underneath like those tight spandex things underneath her pilot suit Mm -hmm. and so i was like do they all have two layers or does she only have two layers so when i was asking a friend they were like maybe it's to like reinforce her boobs because you know you it's like a sports bra you don't want you have an underneath layer and then you have a the regular layer on top they go for men Mm -hmm. maybe they just only wear one layer yeah well even it's even a thing because um i um was talking to like a um Someone who like makes armor for uh, like uh, Renaissance fairs and stuff, and they're talking yeah. about the the. Um, I'm like, hey, do you think that, you know why don't you ever see like the 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 breastplate armor for like chicks like you see in fantasies? And pretty much the direct answer I got is like because it wouldn't work in real life. It's like that. It pretty much is just all you're doing is strapping metal, formed metal over you, and it's not going to provide any protection whatsoever. It's like when you look at armor, it kind of it sticks out because it's that's what it's there for. It's to take a blunt blow and. When you do that for women, you just kind of give them the form-fitting one. That's not blocking anything. That's like when you see right. Kevlar vests; right. they're just big, thick sheets in front, you know, on, on a strap in front of you because they're there to take a blow. So it does it doesn't work, you know, that way. Then again, we're also talking about plug suits, like in Evangelion, and you have to stylize things a little bit. So. Yeah, but I thought that was just an interesting note that she had two layers of clothing. And then for the costume section, it was pretty short and to the point. And then after that, they did environments, Mm -hmm. the concept art for the environments. And they broke them down to three. Um, The con pod, Mm -hmm. they pretty much just showed almost like, I believe it was in the film, when they only had one pilot. Mm -hmm. And they drew him that he was just kind of hanging there. Malekith style if you just saw Thor the Dark World mm-hmm. or I would say when Iron Man gets a suit put on it's a very like the you know it's just he's standing there starfish style but kind of hanging but they did that originally and it just showed one pilot and that's what they had for artwork under the con pod mm-hmm. and then for the construction site I was like what what kind of concept art would they show for a construction site it's actually when um Stacker Pentecost is landing in his helicopter mm-hmm. and all the construction workers are running mm-hmm. and all I can see is someone putting a caption that says Idris Elba is coming run for it 
Because the way that they drew the people, it doesn't look like they're running from the helicopters because they don't, you know, you want to be away from the wind. They're running like, they drew them like the extras had faces of fear (laughs) that Idris Elba was coming for them. And so I thought that was really interesting how they drew that. I don't know if it was intentional or not. Mm. And then the next part that they had done was the Shatter Dome. Mm. But the environment that they showed was during the the training, not the sparring, but like kind of you know, training with the bow staff. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong as automatic slideshow. It didn't let me hit it manually. It sh- it looked like actually originally that Mako and Riley had wooden swords. Yeah, and not bow staffs. Yeah, that well, they would they probably would have been um um the uh, the training katanas. That yeah, actually like would have made, honestly, that would have made more sense. sense too. Yeah, but you know, for the sake of the U-boat that came later, mm-hmm. I guess bow staffs are gonna have to be needed. And then the next part is, I guess apparently I took a break, mm-hmm. and my DVD did not realize that. And when <laughs> I came back, I saw a picture. It it said antiverse. Mm-hmm. It's A N T E verse, not antiverse. Yeah, but I think but it's antiverse. supposed to be pronounced and uh, like antiverse. But they wanted to give it like a, a like a unique spelling, so give it you know like how sci-fi changed from sci-fi to sci-fi, you know, so that way, C-fi. yeah, sci-fi, so that way they could you know they could lay their claim to it. Yes, and it's the antiverse, and it was a concept art of the head aliens, and I thought I was watching Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, I was like, did I did the is the DVD mm. possess? Did I do something? Yeah, that was the most. Um, that that was the most Deltorian aspect, I think, of the whole film. Yes. Because it's interesting because uh, I actually read the original draft that Beachman wrote on his own. That was the pitch for the film. And, yes. And um, you don't they don't uh, go into the antiverse that much. They do have a version of the drift sequence, but it wasn't with Newt. It was with someone else. And they kind of show you a little bit more. Like he goes through the antiverse. <coughs> Pardon me. And instead of um, being the factory kind of, like, look that it is where they're building the kaiju, it's more of like a holding pin. And the uh, the precursors, as they're called, were uh, far more reptilian. Like, they resembled the kaiju far more. You know, then, you know it, to an extent, that idea is kept. You know, they're multi-limbed and everything like that. But they were more kind of like the, um, I guess the easiest way to explain were like the Gorn from the original Star Trek. Yes, and I can see it's very Deltorian, mm-hmm. also because much like Tim Burton, his dogs yeah. all look a certain way, yeah. like Zero and Frankenweenie, mm-hmm. but it's kind of like their stamp on things. And then I looked on the bottom, and in the bottom of the uh, the concept art of, I would like to say, the Pan's Labyrinth-looking alien mm-hmm. mofo, it says Cardinal and his bishop. Mm-hmm. So I guess, you know, they kind of have ranks and titles. To be honest, I would have preferred Travis Beecham's way Mm -hmm. because I feel like, you know, you should clone kind of larger versions of yourself. Mm -hmm. But I can see since Del Toro, you know, kind of is heavily involved, if not took over the project, I can see why there's a Del Torian stamp on it. Well, the way the original uh, script kind of um, implied was the fact that um, the kaiju were, they weren't bred. There was never any indication that they were they were bred, but they were like the native 
like uh, uh, animals of that world, and pretty much like Voltron, how uh, King uh, uh, King Lotar would take one and then he had Hagger, you know, add to it and make it grow so it could, you know, fight Voltron. They were kind of held in a pen, and it was like this massive sea of like kaiju that were just crawling all over each other, and they would pluck one out and then they would send it through the uh, the rift, and it would come out. And that was and the interesting thing about that was. Um, you can see the ideas that Beecham had because whenever the um, the kaiju, you know, would come on, you know, when he would write the kaiju scenes, he would give them a name, and then he would give, like, um, a general description, but it was enough to where you got an idea in your head of what these things would look like. And a lot of them were way off of, of what Del Toro eventually had designed. They were more... They, there was far more uh, variety, if you will. Like, at one point, they, the scripts in... Uh, they're in uh, Lima, and uh, one of the characters that isn't even in the film is meeting up with uh, Newt for the first time, and they're on the beach, and a kaiju attacks. So it comes out of the water, and it's, a, it's a, called a dengue, and it's a half, it's a spider. The way they described it was a, it was a, like, it was half spider, half dragon. So it was reptilian. Oh my god, yeah, rep- I would have fell in love yeah, with it. Yeah, it was it. reptilian in nature. It had like a big reptilian head but it had um eight legs like a spider it had like a body like a spider and it had like hairs like a spider on it but it was they were scaly in nature and so when it fought uh i believe the the uh the jaeger fights and that's the first time you really see like a a full-on jaeger fight in the movie it was a uh, puma real i think that's the the south american jaeger and there's a sequence and they, they this was pretty much set to show you like you know, what really happens when a kaiju attacks. Like, they sound the alarm, it's like a tornado's coming, people are running and screaming, and then when Dengue comes up, like, the Jaeger falls into the ocean, tries to hold him off there, and the the kaiju pushes forward, and what it one of its attacks is, it takes one of its legs and tosses, you know, just kind of, like, almost slaps the air, but you see that, like, this haze kind of comes off of it, and it starts hitting the Jaeger, and they start bouncing off, and when you know, the way that the script describes it is they come closer and they start landing on the ground. They're giant barbs, like the size of javelins. And they're just plunging on the ground everywhere and they're hitting people and they're just impaling. And that's, you know, in, you know kind of implying to the effect that these uh, creatures have. Yeah. And not only that, was, not only that, but and if I can go into a little more, the interesting thing was that they, there wasn't uh, the... the rankings of the kaiju were all different whenever they came out. Like, the first kaiju they ever attacked was a Category 5. And then they had Category 2s, Category 4s, Category 3s, you know, the, there was no rhyme or reason to any of it. So, it been pretty much it, the, it went back to the fact that they weren't, the, the precursors weren't making them, they were just kind of plucking them out of this holding pen that they had, and threw them out there. Because later on, uh, the big sequence is three. They, there's a three kaiju fight, like at the like towards the end, but it's far different. It involves uh, Tactic Ronin, who has a, a major part in the film, and Gypsy, and they're fighting um, what I can describe as something akin to the Toho Frankenstein. It's a very humanoid-looking creature with some hair, but it's very pale. And they, right. uh, I forgot the second one off the top of my head because I, I haven't read the the script in a while. But I, the third one was, it was a Category 5, and it was a giant Cthulhu-looking monster. The best the best way I could describe it is uh, there was a uh, series in the 80s that Hasbro had made called Inhumanoids. 
It was about, uh-huh. <laughs> about giant. It was about these big underground creatures that came up, and they, you know, they were part of a uh, like an extinct race. And one of the creatures was called uh, Leash or is it Le- 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 Leisher, I think. But pretty much, he looked like a big Cthulhu um, man thing looking creature that had trendle arms, and that's what this big Category Five one was. And it spat little tiny like parasites that would explode upon impact. So that that's that that's where Travis Beachman was thinking when he was going with his kaiju compared to what we ultimately got in the film, which was a more, you know, when when they when they kind of developed the the precursors, you know, techniques of sending the kaiju, it makes more sense that yeah you slowly keep building them more and more and you know improving upon them so that the categories get bigger and bigger. Yes, and the categories, if you also look up uh, online on the Pacific Rim Rikia is. They are not just by size, but also the acidity and toxicity. And the radiation they what, out, too. And the radiation of their bodies, because mm-hmm. they're not hydrogen, like ammonia-based creatures, or they're, you know, different types of base creatures. That's why when you see a shot of not just the feces, but, like, when the workers are cleaning up, yeah, their gloves yeah, like, are, like, blue and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, the blood's to- toxic. I believe they're, they're not carbon-based, they're silicon-based. And so everything is... Um... Everything about them is just hazardous. Yes, and that when they die, they're meant to uh, spontaneously combust and take out yeah, th- people with them. Yeah, they're pretty much they're built to. Um, as uh, when I asked Beachman at Comic Con, I'm like, so the you know because I was asking about you know why was a pregnant one. He's like, well, the precursors. The idea is, you know, they're the kaiju aren't built to last. Like they they know that humanity's fighting back, so. Pretty much, they're sent there to do as much damage as possible. That even involves after death. That's why the blood's toxic. That's why their bodies are toxic. And that's, you know, it's like now, you know, if they kill one, you know, they send them pregnant now. So, <coughs> excuse me, the, maybe the little one can a uh, little one can escape and go undetected, grow, and then, you know, they wouldn't they would never see it coming because it wouldn't come out for the, through the breach. So they're pretty much sending, you know, uh, it. Like shoe bombs, if you will, into right. the, with the kaiju now. So they're 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 getting smarter and craftier about how how they're delivering their 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 bombs. Right, right, and I think that was really interesting. You know, the difference between how the original writer mm-hmm. kind of thought. To be honest, yes, shooting acid out of its mouth is a lot scarier. Mm-hmm. But shooting little parasites that fly out that explode. later that's. That is w- mm. way more terrifying because yeah. insects will just fly anywhere. At least with acid, it's kind of a stream yeah, no, no, that you the, can dodge. Yeah, the original script had a lot of great ideas, but it wasn't it wasn't a perfect um, it wasn't a perfect film if it was shot that way. There was a I, I, and to be honest, Gil, Del Toro improved a lot on that just story wise when he came in to collaborate with Beachman. Uh, in the original draft, it was. Um, Mako and Raleigh did like there was a romance arc between them, and I'm glad that <clears throat> that got kicked out because it works much better on screen if they just had like this nice mutual respect. It was it was refreshing not to see the uh, the, the the played out romance angle between you know a man and a woman. <clears throat> exactly, and it's hinted. It, it's you know, hinted, if, like, you, there, if, if you know, you know. If you don't, it doesn't change the story. Exactly, but there was um, but there was a there was a bit more like the the Jaeger program wasn't the wasn't at the end when uh, in the original draft, like they were still going strong. But the problem was they were starting to lose, and they were losing pilots. And they they made a big deal about um, the fact that 
the drift compatibility was you had to either be related or married or you know something within the there was a there had to be a very close bond and so the idea in um original draft was that raleigh was you know his brother still died uh they died defending la from a giant turtle kaiju called tortuga and uh in in the original draft uh the con pods were separate they're like two different con pods that were inside the chest so they weren't inside right the head. right so Tortuga had a uh, spear uh, like uh, attack that came out of its mouth, and it speared the chest of. of uh, and here, here's another cool little thing: they didn't originally pilot Gypsy; they piloted uh, Coyote Tango, or Tango Coyote. Yes, so, I believe it's Coyote Tango. Yes. So they piloted that that mech, and um, Tortuga uh, speared Yancey's side, killing Yancey, and that's you know Raleigh still he had his Evangelion moment where he lost it and. Pretty much, his mind took over the entire kaiju, and he literally beat the kaiju to death. Like it was literally that scene from from the um, first episode of Evangelion when uh, the Ava goes berserk and just tears apart the uh, the angel. It was almost verbatim that scene, but done with a Jaeger and a kaiju instead, and in front of the Santa Monica Pier. Tortuga would have also been another favorite of mine had it made it onto the screen yeah he had a bi he had a trifected mouth so like his jaw opened at two different it's kind of like the predator jaw yeah yeah and uh and for the rest of the environments concept art you know mm. the anti-kaiju refuge looked exactly like it did on paper as it did on screen mm -hmm. and what i found was kind of cute was the propaganda posters mm -hmm. very retro 40 style and it's you know, pictures of the Jaegers saying, you know, bring us to victory or this is victory. And then they'll have pictures of fallen kaiju and it says, help us to get rid of, and it's always this mad brute. Yeah. And so for fun, I was thinking if the Antiverse had propaganda posters against us, mm -hmm. I've always wondered what they would say and look like. I, th I think there's fan art for that out there. Um, I, I, I know I saw something like that on 4chan where they retweet the uh, sequence of, um, you know, when they're testing out the, the Jaeger arm for the first time, when they're testing the rest <laughs> stuff. There's literally a point where they have, like, one of the aliens, <laughs> the precursors, with, like, a device around its arm, <laughs> and then you see a kaiju hand in the background doing the uh, the clasp motion. So there, there was something like that, but I know I've seen human propaganda posters for the uh, for the precursors. You just, you're going to have to go look them up. I'll see if I can find something to put in the show notes, though. Right, right. No, that would be great, and we can put, like, attached pictures, maybe, I don't know, to the to the podcast, mm. and you guys could look. Um, so that was it for everything under Shatterdome. Mm. And the, for, you know, the last two that we're going to go through, because that's all they have in the special features, is the first part is, and I really liked it. Uh, I believe there's a book that also came out recently, but it's a director's digital notebook. Mm -hmm. And recently, Del Toro also has a printed version of just all the notes that he's done, or like what goes on in his brain. It's like Del Toro's hidden notebook. Like, just not, look up, look it up on Amazon. We'll probably attach a link mm -hmm. to uh, to this podcast. But it's you know, I'm always interested to know what certain directors are thinking. And you know, J.K. Rowling sketched out Harry Potter you know, on napkins mm. and other things. And you hear, you know, writers say, when I get an idea, I just kind of sketch it out. Even if it's on a bed sheet, mm -hmm. I like write it out. But it's an entire notebook of Del Toro's things from all his thoughts, from all, you know, for years and years of his life. 
but for the sake of Pacific Rim, it's just a digital notebook version of Pacific Rim itself. Mm-hmm. And as you went through it, you can flip the book pages, digital pages, and you can either get videos or pictures or just little notes. And I think what I thought was so cute, for lack of a better term, was everything is in Spanish. <laughs> so when when it translates, it'll it'll do when you hit Zoom, mm-hmm. there'll be there'll be subtitles on the bottom. Yeah. It is this native of everything's in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And I just thought like, oh, that's really interesting because, you know, it's a Western film. I, I, we know he has an accent. We know mm-hmm. he's from Mexico. But to me, I just assume that a notebook should be in English. That's your terrible Western I, thinking right there. I know. See, it's I my was saying it, then it was just like, oh, you're racist. But it's like, no, oh, no, Jessica, you should know better. <laughs> Exactly, like my mother's diary. Mm. I mean, I can't read it, but my mother's diary is she speaks English fine. Mm. She's great, but she writes all in man, all in Chinese because mm. it's quicker. It's your first native language. But I love how everything was written in Spanish, and I was like, oh, I don't know why I didn't think of that. But next, he went into how he thought the scavengers would look like, which is Ron Perlman's people mm. that went into they took it, and. The way he sketched it, and you have to understand, this is like a very pre-pre-pre, I would say pre-production. But they look like Tusken Raiders, the sand people from Star Wars, with, yeah, with Chinese rice hats. Yeah, and there's a very very, uh, steampunk vibe to them, too, as well. They're real goggle-heavy. There's a huge, like, uh, breathing apparatus over their face. Like, there's none of their face is shown, and it, it just, it... You know, with, with the with the coolies on, with the uh, breathing apparatus, they do look like Tuscan Raiders if they move to China. Exactly. I'm like, really? I like the rice hats, so it's a nice yeah. touch. And, and he does explain in that, it's like, look, we had these really elaborate, you know, outfits, but then as the uh, movie progressed and he wanted to keep everything under budget, the outfits kind of went away to more just standard, you know, they're, you know, they, they kept the coolies, but they pretty much uh, were just working, you know, with their bare hands. Like the uh, the bio suit, the biohazard suits that the guys are wearing when they're walking through the kaiju brain. Those are far more elaborate. And then he's just like, yeah, we didn't have it in the budget, so now they're just wearing these big, you know, bio suits that we could have just gotten from any prop department. It's like, you know, that, that it's one of those um, uh, concessions you make when uh, you're trying to get other things you want to get done in the movie that are going to cost more money. Right, right. But I think there was a slight consolation prize for him, because if you look at the Russian pilots, mm-hmm. they kind of have that sand people goggle yeah, look they do. on top of their thing. I mean, not really, you know, the scavengers ended up looking more like, you know, people in biohazard suits, you know, Breaking Bad style. Yeah. But, you know, there, you know, he got to kind of put his idea into a different character. Um, what I love is Del Toro's de- sense of detail. Yeah. Because there's there's something he wrote in Spanish, and the translation was, even the kaiju's poop must be amazing. And as you can tell, for one of the early kind of marketing, you know, schemes for Pacific Rim, is we got to see news footage. Mm -hmm. And one of them was all of its excrements. And everything, like even Ron Perlman's character says, Cannibal Chow, like, like you know, even its feces can go. has has enough phosphorus to uh, fertilize, like, a whole field. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's just amazing that I was like, this is a director, people, that you have to, like, really respect because he even thinks about fictional characters, too. Mm-hmm. 
And I thought that was great. And as they saw, and then the next video is him drawing or writing. He uses a fountain mm-hmm. pen. And I really like that touch to just Del Toro's personality. It's, it's got that gothic sentimentality to it. Like, definitely, if like, he was a kid growing up today, like, he would be the uh, the rare non-white goth kid, I believe. <laughs> like, but not not so much in the um, the I hate the world kind of tone. But he'd be dressing very, you know, he have he had he would have some Morrissey outfit on, but he'd have like his notebook would just be filled with like monster movies and shit like that. But it'd be all in black, and he'd be writing everything with like you know fancy pens and shit like that. Like just that added little touch. And I think his hair would be dyed black as well. Really. Mm-hmm. That's how you would say. I actually, I was like, you know what? If you do a fountain pen, you gotta really, you gotta go down to a quill. Yeah. I got, I gotta see you start writing in a quill with like orange mm-hmm. ink. And then, the, for, and then, with the fountain pen, you or with the quill, you get the automatic narration. Like everyone can hear what you're writing in your head. <laughs> yes, the scratching, yes. the scratching sound. And the next video, like he went into such detail. I did not, I did not notice this, but. It's when Pentecost first confronts Riley mm-hmm. after being, you know, quote-unquote hiding out in the construction site or whatever. Mm-hmm. He sits on, like, a three-ringed half-pipe. Mm-hmm. And Del Toro says, it's because I've been, you know, really doing research into, like, pipes and underground sewers and stuff. And I was thinking, like, sir, what are you doing mm-hmm. in your free time? And he says, if you ever undo a pipe, you get to see the three rings mm-hmm. that are inside. And the rings, I feel like, and he went through this whole thing about the symbolism of the rings and the and what it symbolizes and who Riley is. But then he also said that he, I wanted it to be a half pipe, mm. kind of broken, because it symbolizes who Riley is. And when Riley sits there, it's kind of like a dude on a throne. Oh yeah, well it's it's like the shoe represents uh, Mako's heart. Like she's literally, yes. you, you see where she's holding too. She's holding it up to like where her heart would be. So yes. yeah, there's a ton of symbolism that goes over 90% of the audience's heads because of course, of course. And if you're like a film geek, you're picking, it's like, oh yeah, okay, I get what that means. And if you're one of those uppity film geeks, you're overly digesting. <laughs> it's like, well, this has even deeper meaning. It's like, no, that's just he's just saying that's what this is. Don't don't read too much into it. Right, right. No, and it's it was like the tumbler from uh, Batman, mm-hmm. the Nolan universe. It's supposed to. It looks like that on the outside. Because it's supposed to symbolize Bruce Wayne's tortured soul. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, 90% of people will not know. They will either like mm-hmm. it or be like, God damn, that is ugly. Yeah. So, but I do I do like the touches. And I, you know, as you guys all know, it's what the special features DVD is for. Mm-hmm. It, or, you know, novelizations or behind the scene books. It's what, it's to help us better understand the film. And... Something that I loved and they only touched upon is when Hannibal Chow, Ron Perlman, was talking about, look at these people. Mm -hmm. It's like they worship the kaiju from the gods and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Del Toro, in his video, in the digital notebook, said had they have a bigger budget, Mm -hmm. he would have shown the temple inside and more outside. And that because these bones fall, Mm -hmm. they're not all able to be moved. No, because they're the size of skyscrapers. They're pretty much, yeah. Exactly. So people start building their towns around Mm -hmm. them. Or in that case in Hong Kong, a temple is built inside of the skull of the kaiju. And he even goes as far to say, "Mm, yeah, I didn't want the entrance to be the mouth. Mm -hmm. I wanted the entrance to be through the nose. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. And he goes, 
just because it fits this and this and this character. Mm. And then, like, he went into the whole symbolization of the nose as opposed to entering through the mouth. And I was like, holy cow, I wish he had a bigger Oh, yeah, budget. well, you're look, if you're talking about detail, when they get that shot of uh, the, 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 uh, the worshippers going into the temple, when you see him ascending the stairs, you notice the stairs are, are carved out of the skull. So there's yes. that whole intricacy of the banister that's completely, it's all carved out of the ivory of, of the bones. It's uh, it's much like how I was pointing out to my buddy when, um, like when Raleigh's fighting Mako, it's like it would, most people missed it until I start pointing out, because like the second time I was watching, I noticed it. Um, the arm that, that um, uh, Gypsy that gets torn off by uh, Knifehead, you remember yes. the suit kind of goes nuts and Raleigh starts feeling it, which is... The only thing that really I kind of I was questioning because they don't play up on it too much later on the whole you know you feel what the what the Jaeger feels because you're connected to it yeah but if you notice that the uh, the suit left all these scars burned into his arm so it's literally yes. where the circuitry was running that you could see all the the circuitry mark like he looks like he's got like a Tron arm going on because they're even like there's a slight yellow tinge to him as well but it's it's so minute that you never notice it. Yes, and that's something that we'll cover also over under the focus points of the actual DVD movie, because uh, there's a scene of uh, Idris Elba, and he's shirtless, but he has all these scars mm. from the circuitry from his suit. Mm. But obviously, that would be for later. Um, yeah, and I think it's all the intricate details. And with all its intricacy, though, Del Toro's next video was saying, in the end, I wanted a simple story. <laughs> One mm-hmm. that you can just follow. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, this is a movie about robots and, you know, monsters. And he goes, and his example that he uses in the video is like the Russians. Yes. They they have all but seven lines. Mm-hmm. But what they say or what's described about them, that's all you need to know. You know, and that, when I heard that, I'm just like, yes, thank you. Because that's the one thing I heard most people who poo-pooed this movie, they're bitching about. They were bitching about how they were stereo, like the characters were stereotyped, and like, oh, you shouldn't be doing that, and these characters doing that. It's like, look, um, just because something is complicated, does not make mean it's smart or it's it's good. Exactly. You know, stereo, stereotypes is a two. It, a stereotype is a double-edged sword. It can be very negative, but it can also be positive because. When you're when you're talking about stereotypes, people put stereotypes in the aspect of you know, uh, of like you know, hey, all Asians are good at math. You know, that's a stereotype. But yes, stereotype. Is, and I will accept yes, that stereotype, exactly. even though I'm not that good at math. But that's a positive it's just, stereotype. It's, it's a positive stereotype. <laughs> but there's because cultures have uh, aspects to them, and that's all invoked into a stereotype. When you think of a Russian, you're thinking of like these burly, kind of uh, straight face, almost dour people, but they walk with a sense of meaning and, you know, they're very heavily coated. They're, they're all they're all very large and burly. And you get that from the, the Russian crew when they're when they're walking. You know, like just how they how they compose themselves. And they have almost that Russian look to them. Like Russians do have a certain look. It's, you know, it, the, there's the saying, you know, like when people point out like when People like to point out uh, when someone's when they're thinking someone's being racist, like, "Oh, you think we all look the same?" You know, it goes with, with white people too. Like, you think all white people look the same? It's like, no, there's 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 certain tinges to, to every ethnicity, you know. And you know, your your greater North American white, as I like to call us, 
We have like <laughs> nicer, we have like a little more rounder face and stuff like that. When you look at Australians, they're far more chiseled, they're cut, but they also have like maybe like uh, you know when they get older, they they uh, they age a little bit differently, and it just might be the uh, the, the the you know a- atmosphere that they're in. Like the, you know, they tend to kind of wrinkle up a little bit more. Russians, on that hand, uh, are very, for the most part, they're they're stocky, but they're built like you know, like uh, almost like machines themselves, which ironically symbolize their con- their country for so many years. You know, it, everybody has every country, every culture has a certain look, has a certain because it's in a way it's almost Darwinism because everything you know, genetics are a product of their environment. You know, and we're People are coming up, you know, and especially how we, you know, as we create a society, we influence our environment. That's what goes into it, and that's what creates a stereotype. So with the Del Toro saying, hey, look, we have these characters. We don't we don't spend much time with them, but I want to convey what they are. And that's part of the visual medium of filmmaking is, you know, you're visually conveying things to people. So when you have to sit there and ex- have a character have a 20-minute dialogue so you can understand him, that, in a way, is almost lazy filmmaking because you're not letting the audience, you know, dis, you know, learn for themselves. You're you're spoon feeding it to them, and just having right. the, the basic generalization of certain characters, like the Russians and the Chinese. It's like, okay, you get it. They're Asian. You know, they have you know the Chinese have the red on them, but they're you know, they're small. They're agile. They're quick. That's why they're Jaeger has, you know, worked for as long as it did. The Russians, they, you know, they're big burly and they pretty much they're like a walking wall. That works. They never have to sit there and explain exactly what these people are. You just know they're Jaeger pilots, they represent their respective countries, and then they do what they need to do. And that's... Yes, and, and it's really straightforward. Mm-hmm. There's not too many, like, B, C, D storylines. Exactly. You just, you know, it's just straightforward to and the point. You, and, you know what's and, happening. Ironic, and you know what? Another movie that got critically praised by everyone that does the exact same thing that Pacific Rim does, that everyone loved. They were like, oh my god, it's great. That relies on that same simplicity and almost no character development was Gravity. Gravity was a it was all visual. And even had the same, you know, technical flaws that Pacific Rim had. But people gravitated ironically, for a better word, gravitated towards that movie because they're like, oh well, you know, they're in space. This could really happen. There's this sense of danger. And Gravity, mind you, was a beautiful film. It had great moments of suspense. It really built. It was almost a one-take film. But honestly, if you know your 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 um, your astrophysics for a better term, a lot of that stuff will could never happen. Like George Clooney could not, you know, take. <laughs> yeah. Take, you know, they couldn't go. You know, a hundred miles through space on that tiny little gas. You know. Um, jetpack that they had to get to the International Space Station. Uh, you know, th- there's that same amount, but people were more, especially like real hardcore film nerds, were more willing to forgive that because a, a director that I guess they, they you know, um, have more respect for than Guillermo del Toro did it, and, you know, they look at del Toro as like, oh, he's the guy that makes the monster movies, so, and all this is doing is copping off Godzilla, so we'll poo-poo that, you know, for its you know, simple storyline, but we'll look at this and like, oh my god, it's great. You know, in terms of gravity. Point I'm trying to make. And I will stop rambling. Right. 
Oh, no, no. No, and it's really, really true about what you said, you know, with all its intricate detail of the kaiju and the Jaegers and the stories and who Mako was, like, 20th generation blade maker was her dad. Like, you wanted a simple story and that if people wanted to know more things, mm -hmm. they will look into exactly. it. Exactly. It's called getting <laughs> off your ass and, you know, learning on your own, which is something I really... Yes. You know, it, it's kind of a lost art, but, you know, that's how you grow as a person. You pick up a book, you read, you, you figure it out for yourself instead of having it just force-fed to you. Right. And um, and exactly, and with the next part is he talked about in the notebook that the colors change of the clothing to reflect the growth of the character. He was saying how, like, in the beginning, Riley had more, like, greens and blues or something and as, as the film changed. I didn't notice that because everything looked like post-apocalyptic, like, yeah. like, simple, like, thing. But, you know, after you point it out, it makes kind of sense. Because, you know, there are such things as warm colors and light colors. They're saying, like, Mako is mostly blue, hence the blue in her mm -hmm. hair. Riley is green to, like, red. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they talked about that. And then they talked about how when Mako and Riley really connected was when they were sitting in front of Gypsy Danger mm -hmm. eating lunch. Because, you know, no one wants to eat lunch. They're, the, they're those people in high school, yeah. sadly. Um, and then you get to see the heart exposed mm -hmm. of Gypsy Danger. And then that's, you know, the whole romantic, oh, their hearts are combining, it's being fixed. And they're, you know, only two people so tragic can really, you know, really find love and get to know each other. Yeah. Um, that part I did notice in the film, not the clothes mm -hmm. part, but definitely that part in the film. Because I heard some girl behind me go, aww. <laughs> So, like, I, I knew it. I was like, okay, so what I'm thinking is not mm -hmm. wrong um, during the film. But, no, I mean, that was pretty much a lot of the highlights I loved in the digital notebook. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing on the special features DVD is the <clears throat> digital artistry. Mm -hmm. And the digital artistry is just a straight, it was like a 10, 11-minute video of the visual effects first meeting that Del Toro had with the people. Mm -hmm. And the second visual effects meaning that, you know, he had with the people. And it's just the process of how precise he is. But it shows that it started, like, since October 2011. And this film didn't come out till this year. And, you know, one of the, like, in the little kind of pre-trailers that, not pre-trailer, it's like before the timestamp of, it says visual effects meeting mm -hmm. 1, October 2011, they show several clips of what was happening before. And if you pause, you can see all the different Jaegers that are behind Del Toro's head when he's sitting in this meeting. And, you know, one of them is... And I also believe that the names was not originally the country that he also matched them with because Tactic Ronin mm -hmm. had, the word Sydney, had the word Sydney underneath. Yeah, well, the, and, then, and then something Alpha said Hong Kong, Romeo Blue also said Sydney, mm -hmm. and Coyote Tango said Japan. Yeah. So I'm beginning to wonder if it's a different country or those are just location marks of where he wants the Jaegers to be. Well, I think originally, because uh, I, I believe the book kind of went into this a little bit, and uh, uh, I'm just going off this off what I read online, was the fact because it, they really don't play up to the fact that like Europe really had anything to do with it, but it turns out that a lot of the Jaeger tech was <laughs> developed by Germans. So That makes sense. I mean, because the guy's name is, is Hermes mm -hmm. Gutlach. Yeah. Or I apologize, mm -hmm. you guys. I cannot say it's the same, but uh, I like to say squirrely friend. Yeah. 
Um, but Goaty, Goaty is as you saw, is the son of the original Jaeger programmer, and he had an accent when he talks to yeah. Newton. So, so it makes sense now that you said that Germany yeah. slash well, pretty Europe. Much the, it was it was the the Jaegers were developed, I think, in Germany, um, by the by, by the Pan Pacific Corp, and they weren't like the, it the the I you know the, I think the idea that people have was each country got to build their own. It's like no no, the uh, the Pan Defense Corp built the Jaeger, and then they would assign them. A country to defend, pretty much, you know, like you're a soldier being put uh, into post. So, right. um, so pretty much, you know, they, they once they were sent to that particular country, they would stay there. And I think a couple of them actually got moved around. Like I believe, okay, I believe Coyote Tango originally was um, was a, was in China, but then they moved it to Japan because I think it was a matter of what was getting attacked more at the time. That's where they were they're placing the Jaegers. But I always liked the fact that the names mm -hmm. reflected something about the country. Yeah. Well, it's like, um, I in like Yukon Brawler. Obviously, that's a Canadian, you know. Uh, <laughs> yes. But you know, it was, mm -hmm. um, it was, t it was originally supposed to be an American Jaeger. It was originally supposed to be, you know, based out of Alaska. So uh, it's, it, I think, it came down, it come, it came down to the Jaegers weren't named until they were placed at the location they were supposed to be at. So. Kind of like you know, christening a uh, a battleship after a, a president. It's like, okay, what president just died that you know we can name this battleship after? Okay, well here we'll we'll give Reagan his own battleship now. So it's I think it's that but concept. True, yeah. true. But also, Jaegers are built to kind of reflect their country too. Mm -hmm. So that means that they must know at least what country they're going to ship it off to. Yeah, well, it could be that. I think a little bit of that is as well. It's like, okay, well, Japan needs this many, so we're going to build them there, you know, ship them off there. But, like, well, hold on, let's keep this one. We'll send Japan to right now. And this one was, really, was originally meant for Japan. We'll send it to uh, South America because they need one right now. You know, it's, it's that kind of idea where it was, you know, we need to get the fences up. It, it's, it's like a good strategy game where... You know, you you know, as you're as you're building your resources, you got to get your defense. The first thing you got to do is get your defense up before you can get a good offense. So, you know, it's a matter of what you have built already and what gets to go where. I, that's just what I'm, as you know, I'm going off of what I read. There could be like a whole nother reason for it that like you know Beachman has for it, but I I do know that um, a couple of the Jaegers did get moved around. I think Coyote Tango was one of them. Okay, because yeah, I noticed that they looked a certain country, but it had a completely different country's name attached mm -hmm. to it. So for those who are watching that DVD special, if you guys, you know, find a screenshot of it, or if you guys cannot buy all the books and supplemental material, if you pause it, if you look behind Del Toro's head, you get to see all the different ones, and they're really interesting. And then it, and then they move on the real, the video to his second visual effects meeting, and. I cannot emphasize it enough. Like I love how detailed Del Toro is and how precise. Mm -hmm. Because he talked about... And the way he talks is also so funny. He was like, you know, and imagine the way I'm speaking mm -hmm. and the way Del Toro would speak. But Guillermo was basically saying, we need to give the background actors something to <laughs> do. Because it's like those kung fu movies where the, act, the main two characters are fighting, but everyone else in the background is standing there, looking in the sky, reading a book. Mm -hmm. So he was like, you know, when they're fighting, the background the background actors give them something to do. Keep them busy. Make them look like they're actually doing something. Mm -hmm. And I like that about, like, 
you know, most people don't think that because I don't, I don't always pay attention to the background actors because, you know, my eyes are in the main focus. Mm-hmm. But background actors are actually pretty important to the mm-hmm. scenes. Like when people are yelling, you know, in the diner scene of How I Met Your Mother, yeah. you see everyone else in the restaurant turn around yeah. and have, like, face expressions. So I think that's something that Del Toro did a really great job. And I love the fact that he talked about uh, how every single, the eyes of every single kaiju are different. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was telling some, you know, a lady that worked there, like, yes, I understand they all look, you know, reptilian or, like, big or whatever, but the eyes are all going to be different. Like a salamander's eyes is different from a turtle's eye, mm-hmm. which is different. And then there's a screenshot of just all these different eyes. Yeah, like one's got, like, the thin slit iris. One's got, like, a big round iris. Like, yeah, they're all... Um, they're all unique snowflakes in their own way. It is. It is. And uh, for those who don't know, one of my bachelor's degree was in zoology. And to be honest, I didn't even notice this. But he was saying, like, so he was looking at someone's computer. And he was, you know, had a touch screen. He had a stylus. And he goes, hmm. Otachi right here, and it's a picture of Otachi with her wings mm. out, or its its wings out. And he goes, "You need you need bones right here." Yeah, they want to put the and pterodactyl so, bone, like where the, the extended yeah. finger would be for the for the wingspan. Yeah, and he was like, "You need bones right here." Mm. And he goes into this whole. You would think he's a veterinarian. Mm. Then he goes into this whole thing, like, "Have you ever seen bats fly or something like that?" Like, if it flew, it would just tear apart. Mm. So it needs like a wing here, like it needs a bone here and a claw there. And I was like, oh my god, he puts me to shame and I have a degree yeah. in it. Like I didn't, that didn't even register in my mind because I was so busy with other focuses of the film. But he puts in such detail to, let's be honest, 99% of the audience does not give a crap if there's an extra bone in Otachi's mm-hmm. wings. All they care is that it flew up and it got sliced yeah. by an awesome yes. sword. So I really, really liked that. And, you know, down to down to the last detail is um, he was talking about how when Leatherback gets onto land mm-hmm. and he's more like a gorilla kind of moving, he goes and he steps over onto the loading dock mm-hmm. and, he, and his, you know, his knuckles like crush into the shipping crates. And he was like, as you can tell, it's belly. And then like he paws and like circles the belly of Leatherback. He goes, it, it moves different. The way it moves onto the loading dock needs to be a lot more heavy. He goes, as you can tell with me, and then he points to himself, <laughs> my wife can tell you when I step out of the tub <laughs> and I'm moving and I'm heavy, and I just thought, like, it takes a lot in a person <laughs> to not really see that detail, but to poke fun of yourself <laughs> in a light-hearted way. And he was like, no, the belly needs to move like this, and the way he gets out of, onto the dock is like the way I would get out of a tub. <laughs> you know, and he went into this whole detail, and you can see, like, Everyone's just kind of sitting there with a, how do I respond? Yeah. If I if I agree, does it make it seem like I think he has a weight yeah. issue? Or if I don't agree, does it mean I don't think his details right? Well, here's the secret. Being a large man myself, every fat guy knows he's a fat guy. So we, we, we've learned to poke fun at ourselves. We, we know our shortcomings. Like, we are not Adonises. We, we do not have, you know, great bodies. We, we don't have what they call beach water park bodies. So... You know, we, we 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 see the shame when we walk out, and we're like, okay, well, we got to roll with the punches. Oh, no. But I've always wondered if Del Toro's going to pull a Peter Jackson, 
because I thought to myself, if this man has any health issues mm. and is suddenly taken from yeah. us to the Pan's Labyrinth of all heavens, mm. I'm going to be really upset. Yeah. No, I th- I think he's he's fine. He's he's lost weight. He's gained weight. Like he's down from what he used to be. Like when I met him, I got a picture of a actually a thin in shape me from uh, my senior year of high school when I met him at the uh, L.A. Comic Convention, and he was he was very big back then. I would say he was tipping the scales at least three sixty easily back then. Like he was a big boy. Like he's definitely gone down since then. But you got, it's it's the teddy bear feel. I like he, it. Yes, he still has it. Like when I met him uh, two years ago, right before he went for production of um, Pacific Rim, like he was much thinner, but he was still he was he's still a big boy. So, you know, uh, he's, yeah, he's getting to that age. And I know for a fact Peter Jackson, he's put back on a lot of that weight that he lost. But a lot of that weight has he? Yeah, has he? He's, he's not he's not pre Lord of the Rings fat, but he's got. He's got some chub back on him, and I know for a fact that the the end of Lord of the Rings to King Kong, it, a lot of that weight loss was like stress weight that he lost. That was just him, just like oh, no. yeah, that was him. Like I can't eat oh. because I can't sleep because I'm just working myself to death. That's oh. yeah, that's why he's gained a lot of that back. Because now, like he had time to kind of calm down. He filmed a couple of other movies. I I'm, I wouldn't doubt that the Hobbit may might take a little bit out of him, but. We'll see what what he does after he's done with the Hobbit films. You know, see if he jumps into something, if he or if he's learned his lesson. Right, right. But no, I mean, I just thought like the whole like teddy because I saw him as more of a teddy bear, like a loving teddy bear. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he compared himself to like the physical movements of Leatherback, yeah. I was like, oh, dude, don't do that to yourself. But he said it with like a joy yeah. on his face. I was like. I like him as a person hum- and as a director. He's a very humble man. Yes, and I thought that was so great. But no, I mean, that's all the notes I have on Del Toro. <laughs> but no, this what we loved about the special mm-hmm. features is you got to really kind of get into his mind. Not really Travis Beecham's no, mind. No, which he was surprisingly more... absent from this disc. He was, and as we go into part two or three mm-hmm. of this podcast, um, however, our lovely Chris would like to edit it, you only saw Travis for all of, like, three times yeah. on the actual movie DVD special mm-hmm. features. Not the special features disc, mm-hmm. but, like, we barely saw him, and I think it's, like, he had to take a back seat and make it a Del Toro yeah. show. I, that, it, that, so... that's why it's down to what the uh, producers of the DVD wanted. Because a lot of people, like, when, before the movie came out, like, the Beastman was pretty front and center about, you know, he being the originator of the concept of, of Pacific Rim, and then, you know, Del Toro, Del Toro coming in, putting his his, his uh, touches on it, but, you know, the whole, the Jaeger, the Kaiju, all that, that's all Beastman's, you know, concept, that's all of his, his doing. And, uh, you know, the finer brushes were all done by, by Del Toro, so... You know, it's it's saying a lot that the, they completely ditched him, but it's also goes with an adage that the writer always gets the short end of the stick when it comes to the uh, to, to the uh, the final product of the film. Even though the ironically they are mostly the core reason why the film exists. Yes, that was. I mean, as amazing as Del Toro mm-hmm. is, Del Toro was approached by Beachmitch Podcast. Yes, uh, legend, you know, yeah, so... legendary really wanted him. Like they were waiting. Like, he was going to be originally just a producer on the film, which I, I could only imagine, 
who they would have found to direct this movie before. Like, I can't, I, the mind boggles. But, uh, you know, the, you know, had, it, it was a matter of, as he even said, it's like, if, um, because uh, Thomas Toll had just been working on him to do something, they wanted him to do Pacific Rim, so he told him, it's like, I'm going to learn from Universal Friday whether or not I get to move forward with, uh, at the Mounds of Madness. If I don't, I'll be there Monday morning to sign the contract. Literally Friday night at like 6 o'clock, he got the word, we're passing. Monday morning at 8 a.m., he was in the office as a legendary signing the contract to do Pacific Rim. That would be, yeah, that's really <laughs> awesome. And I'm glad that Del Toro got, you know, involved. But I would also love to see if I had a future dream, a special, you know, dream project, mm-hmm. uh, special features of what was going on in Travis's mind. You know, I would love to see that because, you know, that little parasite, sh- parasite shooting on your mouth is, is my worst nightmare. Oh, yeah. oh, the w- worse than the and acid. He, worse than the yeah, acid. Yeah, and he does describe the Jaegers in detail, too. And Gypsy was far different than what was, um, you know, finally conceived. Like, it had uh, it had more of, like, a build akin to uh, uh, Crimson Typhoon. Not, not with the three arms, but just the way the legs were, like the back, you know, the... The uh, the chicken legs, the way it hunched, all that that's uh, that that's all how a lot of Gypsy was and um, uh, Tactic Ronin, the uh, the the Jaeger you briefly see in the news footage, the Japanese one, played a yes. big role and it was far more humanoid in the script. It actually had a beam sword too, like it had a um, it wasn't exactly like a lightsaber, but it was like a a piece of metal that heated up. And it was able to, you know, they used it to cut through kaiju. It actually killed two of them in, like, the main battle that way before it, um... But the problem was, though, it sucked up, like, the, uh, the reserve power of it, of the, uh, the, the, of the Jaeger. So, I mean, it, it's interesting. There was a lot, like I said, there was a lot of interesting... It's gonna have, we're gonna have to, like, sit down one day and, like, do, like, a whole podcast based around the original draft, because there's many, many interesting differences, and I love kind of dissecting, you know, the the germ, the, or the the seed of a film to the final product is, and you, there's always wonderful little bits that get left behind that's like, if only they left that in. Right, right. No, I know I know completely what you mm-hmm. mean. But, I mean, I mean, so far for everyone listening, that's what we have to say on the Special Features DVD. If you guys have anything to add or hopefully not blast mm-hmm. us with, like, I can't believe you forgot the name of that yeah. actor. Uh, you, yeah. Comment below. Yes, comment below. Uh, if, you know, you have list lasted these two hours and 15 minutes so far through this part one, mind you. Uh, yes, please please let us know what, you know, how we're doing. Um, that's going to bring us to the end of this particular episode. Uh, do stay tuned for part two. Uh, we'll be up about a week after this one uh, where we go into more of the DVD. Believe me, we ain't done. We've only scratched the surface, shockingly. So, uh, Jessica, where can they find your work this week? Oh, yes. You can find me on thecomicbookgirl.com mm-hmm. and girlongeek.com. And there is a section on girlongeek.com that is also about my love with kaiju and mecha and robots and everything of all the related source. You'll see my rantings and ravings for the new RoboCop. To like everything else. That's related. another one I want to get you on my podcast for because I'm a Robocop's one of my all time favorite films. So, oh yes, yes, and then of course, where can we find you, Chris? Uh, I am the uh, the uh, co-editor of the Realmcast.com. 
I do run the site, the main, the hosting site for this podcast, PanzerCrush.com, which I have just restarted after a year's hiatus. That site covers a lot more of, uh, you know, more otter stuff that uh, you won't find like on on, uh, on Realmcast, where we cover a lot more pop culture stuff. Uh, it's a it's an odd mixture, but I hope you do. If you come here to, if you come to Panzer to uh, to download, just, you know, peep your head in there. You might find something interesting. Um, I do three podcasts, or well, no, this is my third. So I do two other podcasts on the Realmcast, the main Realmcast uh, podcast. Uh, take two with uh, George, my uh, co-editor, and uh, you can also find us online at therealmcast.com, as I said, on Twitter at therealmcast.com, and uh, uh, we're also on Facebook. And uh, that note, you can also find the Kaiju Cast Kingdom, or the Kaiju Kingdom podcast. I'm, it's, we've been going on a long time, people. <laughs> the Kaiju Kingdom podcast on Facebook, um, and you can also find us on Tumblr. Jessica, where can you find us on Tumblr? It's uh, the Kaiju Kingdom Podcast.tumblr.com. You can also Twitter us. And uh, thank you to Twitter, only allows so long of a username. Mm. We are the Kaiju Kingdom. Okay. No, no podcast at the end of that word. And our email, if you really want to stalk us and send us angry things but not post it publicly or in a private message, we are the Kaiju Kingdom Podcast at gmail.com. All right. Well, that will do it for us for this week. Again, stay tuned for the next episode where we will continue to dive into uh, the Pacific Rim disc. And just remember, Monster Island isn't actually an island. It's actually a peninsula. (laughs) See you next time.